Well, hello, and welcome to episode 10 of the Bomb Steve Podcast. This episode is my interview with Michael Vela. Mike's the creator of Gearhead Magazine and the founder of Gearhead Records. They're the record label that signed the Hives and brought them to the United States. He's also an author. He's written a couple books. He wrote The Hot Rod World of Robert Williams and also the uh, the Salinas Boys book, the book on Cole Foster. Mike's a great guy and a, a good friend, and uh, I learned a lot about him in this interview. As you may or may not know, Mike was heavily involved in the early hardcore scene in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, so it was really fun to, to hear some of his stories about that. Uh, sit back and enjoy. This one's a, a bit of a long one again, but I think you'll really like it. Here it is, episode 10 of the Bomb City Podcast. Mike LaBella, thanks for listening. What, uh, you, what, really? You know, I, I expected like a really intense no, that, like, line of questioning. It's just a oh. just conversation, not like a... I would always, uh, if I were you, come with some prepared questions. All right. Uh, I really think it's it, it, it puts the, the interviewee at ease. It looks like you did some research. <laughs> I know what you mean. Like, yeah. <laughs> just saying. But it makes him all like, he gets stressed out about it then. If you have questions, I'll just reference. And what, and what if you get a... Have you ever interviewed anyone who doesn't want to talk? It's the worst. Not yet. No, well, I, I have. Uh, Sam Butera, specifically. Yeah. Sam Butera. Sam Butera didn't even... He had a... Okay. I'm, I'm like, so Sam, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I don't, know, I don't know. And then he hands me his card, and he had this thing called the CRS Club. Sam Butera's Can't Remember Shit Club. <laughs> he actually celebrated the fact that he couldn't remember anything. And this and, is Sam Butera from... Uh, you know, Louis Prima's sideman. Okay. Louis Prima, Louis, you know, Louis Prima, Sam Butera, and the Wildest. Okay. For years. I mean, they made all these records for Capitol and and, and Dot. And, and, and then he had his own career, too. You know, he did... Uh, he did the soundtrack to uh, this Tony Curtis movie called The Rat Race. It was great. I mean, he's a great, but he's a staple of, of like New Orleans. He played it. Okay, so Louis Prima's brother Leon Prima had a strip club, and 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 uh, Sam played sax like behind strippers. You know, he has all these stories. Like, imagine the stuff this guy saw in the fifties. Then finally, in fifty four, Louis called him out to. Uh, uh, Christmas out to Vegas. He's like, we got this gig. It's happened. He came out and he rearranged it. And he's the one who rearranged just the gigolo and all that. And all, everything that Louis Prima is is uh, known for was Sam. Sam did all the arrangements. He was a hell of a hell of a sax player. Neat guy. Uh, cheap. Famously cheap guy. But interesting. And he, he interacted with... I mean, he knew Sinatra. He knew everybody. He's this guy. He's this wealth. And I get him. He's like, I don't know. Nothing, you know? <laughs> then he hands me the... Then he makes me a member of the Can't Remember Shit Club. You know, so I had to stretch that interview. I mean, this is a gearhead number two. I think it only ran four pages. and It's mostly photos. I mean, I could barely get them to talk. You know, but if if you uh, if you get someone that doesn't want to talk, it's it's uh, it's really helpful to have a line of questioning. You yeah. know, now most people I've found really want to talk about themselves. You know, you're giving a good interview when they're. If you've read numerous interviews with the person, and then the interview they're giving you bears no resemblance to any other interviews. Yeah. For instance, the best example is the Melvins, I guess. Uh, Gearhead number eight interviewed the Melvins, and all they wanted to talk about was the th- the tricks that they pulled on other journalists. <laughs> it's like, we told this guy, I sold it, da, 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 and we told this guy, you know, because they were on Atlantic at the time. Yeah. So I'm sure they had some real high-powered publicist, and they, and they and they just, they pranked all these people. They would tell them, they would tell them, like, totally outrageous things, but just believable enough that they would get printed. And then they would laugh that the person printed them. And they were tell so my, my interview with them is them coming clean about everything they ever pulled off. That's when you know you're, you've earned the person's trust, you know? And so that, that, those are the best interviews. You're just like, you know, you're like giddy while they're telling you stuff. You was, know? was, 
interviewing with Gearhead the first time you started doing it? Oh, geez, no, no. Um, I oh shit, I, I I go back to, okay, in '84, there was a magazine in Philly called Terminal, and they were uh, like uh, nationally distributed. They were they weren't really like uh, punk. They were like they would have like Sonic Youth on the cover or or that scene. They were really into all that stuff. And uh, he wanted a Pittsburgh correspondent, the guy who published it. I don't know why. And he, and he kept hearing about the five who were like Big Fish, Small Pond, uh, you know, Reed Paley, singer, uh, who's gone on to uh, make records with uh, Black Francis, uh, you know, from the Pixies and stuff. He's a, he makes a living as a singer-songwriter, not easy. Um, sort of, a, sort of a, 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 a punk rock Jewish Lee Hazelwood, if you will. <laughs> but he... Um, uh, I love Reed Paley. Uh, he's a good friend. He was a mentor, really. He was the one who, when I was in Half-Life, when I first started, he was the one who was like, here's how you put up flyers. Here's where you this. Here's that. He would show me, like, how to get the most bang out of Pittsburgh. You know, it's like, you go to other, because then, then you make the flyer four up on a eight and a half, eleven piece of paper so that you can cut it and leave little stacks, like if X were playing or something. He's like, this is where, you know, you're going to grab, if you get three people that have never been to the banana before, like our little punk venue, you, you know, you did a good job. Like, it's, you know, he, so he was uh, instrumental in getting me to, uh, you know, just to show me the ropes, basically. It really took me under his wing. And um, uh, it's a terminal wanted a story about the five, so I wrote it, and that was the first thing I ever had published. That was in 84. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started corresponding to Maximum Rock and Roll. I started writing scene reports. I wrote a few. Um, yeah, and then we had a little zine called Beyond Good and Evil in Pittsburgh, which was a, largely a flyer. Uh, the back cover was a flyer for whatever was the next big upcoming show, mm-hmm. and then we would make it, and it was only uh, it was two pages, eight and a half, eleven Xerox folded, so you'd have it looked like an eight page scene, you know. Mm-hmm. And we would we would interview people, we interviewed the bands that no one interviewed, yeah. we interviewed the Vampire Lesbos, <laughs> we interviewed Iron Fist, which ended up Tom Hazelmeyer from Amrep's brother was in that band, Tim Hazelmeyer, but uh, unbeknownst to us at that time, Amrep didn't exist yet. Um, so years before Helmet and all that stuff. But uh, uh, so I, I, I had my own little zine and, and it was free. I was really big on uh, just, you know, we would we knew people at Kinko's, whatever, you know, it was typical punk rock, like sneak it or somebody worked in an office that run off 100, you know, and then would would collate it and staple it and uh, give them all to kids. And um, I, I wanted to make it free so nobody could bitch about it. Yeah. That was like my big thing. I didn't want anyone oh, I paid a quarter. And I hate this thing, you know. So, I mean, like fear of uh, fear of you know uh, rebellion against poor quality. I guess. <laughs> so I mean, no, I made it free. But it, it was just a thing that we did. There were five issues, I think, and um, it's just we just did it. But it was cool. We, I mean, that, that I certainly interviewed people and all that. And then in nineteen eighty seven, Half Life played at Gilman and. Uh, we we got interviewed for Flipside at, at Gilman actually mm-hmm. that that Flipside interview with Half Life took place at Gilman, but uh, uh, Tim Yohannan just we were out there talking and uh, he was like you know you know he would smoke he always had a cigarette in his mouth and he would he would hit the cigarette harder than anyone I've ever seen in my life like <laughs> like by half the cigarette would go down you know he's like he's like he's like if you could write the way you talk you'd be great and I'm like really he's like he's just like the way I talked he liked the cadence of my voice and like the way I would you know tell a story or whatever you know and um 
and he was like, if you come out here, you got a job. And I'm like, what, 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 what does that mean? Nobody, <laughs> nobody got paid there. But, but actually, he would. You know, at the end of the year, they did a financial disclosure, said how much money they came in, and whatever was left, they'd cut us each a check. Yeah. And they would cut you a check based on how long you were there. And I remember, hell, toward the end, I was probably getting like, like around Christmas, you'd get a check for like $250, which is great at that time of your life when you're, you know, my rent was 400 bucks a month. And I was living in the Tenderloin, you know, I mean, that, that was, uh, you know, it was great. It was great that he did that. And, but they were a resource. They were like a wealth. You'd go there and there was all those records and magazines. And it was, a, it was a good thing to, for me to be involved in. I stayed out of the politics. Uh, Tim was famously a communist, you know, and I, uh, he was an Iranian communist from New Jersey. He had everything going against him that you could ever, you know, but, uh, I respected Tim a lot because he said, you know, we're going to start this magazine, and he did it. We're going to start a radio show, and he did it. We're going to start a club, and they did it. We're going to start a record store, and they did it with Epicenter Zone. And then they had uh, Pressure Drop Press. I think he put money in, whatever. And, like, he really lived what he talked. And a lot of people talked shit on Tim, but he was, he was the one who really said, you should write. So I screwed around with writing, but it wasn't until MRR. So I move out here, and I have, I have no idea. Uh, you know, I married a lesbian, famously, so I could move out here. Uh, it's true. Um, <laughs> and uh, she's great. She still lives in Berkeley. We're still friends. But uh, she, um, we, uh, uh, we had to move to Tenderloin. We had no money at all. Uh, whatever money I had, uh, I, you know, we were coming across America in the Half-Life van. And, of course, I was stopping at record stores. So whatever I left with, I, <laughs> I arrived with less, you know. Um, but man, you could buy, that's when you could buy, like find a Funkadelic record for four bucks. I'm really glad what I bought. Everything I bought is worth, I mean, the, the 40 I spent is worth 400 today. I'm sure, you know, or whatever I, buying records was buying the right records is never a bad investment. And it, it certainly kept me alive through the, the thin times selling a record here and there to, to keep it going, you know? But, um, so when we got here, it was just like the tenderloin and when did and, you get here? What year? Uh, September, 1988. I got here. I left. So 1988, Half-Life was still together. We played, we recorded our, our album, and I left. And I gave the tape to my friend, and I said, find a label. And they did. Skyclad put it out, and then uh, it actually did come out and everything. But and then we did a 7-inch before I left, our second single. So, um, and, then, and then our first tape that we did came out on Get Hip 2. Uh, he eventually put it out. It, it came out posthumously. but So everything we ever recorded actually ended up on vinyl, which is nice. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, well, I got here in September of 88, moved into the Tenderloin, went on a Sunday to look at the place, and it was like the one quiet time <laughs> we moved in. And, of course, we tried to move in, and it's, you know, it's. I remember, like, ha having to ask police to move the wall of prostitutes they were arresting from the door <laughs> so we could carry our stuff in, you know, the urine-soaked doorway. You know, it's horrible, you know, but that, that's that's what we could afford. So, and, and, and no credit check, by the way. Yeah. We could have never passed the credit check. So they were just like, oh, you have money? You're, you come on in. And it was, I know it was first month's rent and last month's only. There was no security or anything. So, you know, and it was $675 a month. So I guess we had the 1300 bucks and that was it. I remember we were writing the check and then we both had zero. I think I had a dollar and, and my ex had $5 or something. So we're like, well, better get jobs. You know, literally. And it was, it was that tight, you know. We just made it. But Tim Yohannan... True to his word, you know, as soon as I showed up, he's like, hey, come on over. And he started assigning me records to review. And that's really how it started, was reviewing records. But I got a job at Bay Area Records and Tapes. It's not there anymore. 1444 Polk Street. 
at, at California where the cable car turns around. My boss, Lloyd Stanford, died of cheapness. He's the only human being I ever knew who died of... He was so cheap. He was so cheap that he wouldn't buy any a meal if it was more than a buck ninety nine. And back then you could get dollar ninety nine. You could get like two eggs scrambled, home fries and toast for buck ninety nine. And then he would just slather everything in butter. And he just dropped dead one day. And he couldn't have been. I don't even know if he was sixty years old. But he, he, just, he was so he was so cheap, uh, and uh, it, it was crazy. Anyway, um, he. Uh, I uh, and so I started working there four fifty an hour, and I I was. Uh, Within uh, within a couple months, I was uh, raised to the lofty position of assistant manager in five fifty an hour. So you know, I, I uh, um, but uh, t- Frankie from Crime walked in. You know, famous. You know, the San Francisco punk band of all time, Crime. He walked in. I'm like, are you Frankie Fix? And he's like, hey. You know, I'm like, hey, I'm like, I want to interview you. And he's like, hey, all right. And he lived and he put he wrote his address. He didn't have a phone. He wrote his address on a matchbook, which I still have, of course. And it was like a, he probably had money at one time. It was like a pretty nice apartment. It was rent controlled. He's hanging on to it, you know. And I went over there and I interviewed him and uh, Tim Yohannan made it the cover story of MRR. So the first interview I ever did was the cover story. And I, so I was like, wow, you know. And then I interviewed, like Sub Pop was happening then. I interviewed uh, Bruce Patman and Jonathan Poneman. Then I did a big interview with Tim Kerr. And then I interviewed um, the cynics at one point. I, I would just, whatever I thought the zine was missing, Mudhoney. Yeah. That's how I got my job at Thrasher. I interviewed Mudhoney, and I had so much stuff. Uh, Pusshead um, called me and said, you know, do you, I, I want to do a Mudhoney thing. I, I understand that you know them. And I'm like, well, yeah, I know them. I, I know them as well as anyone who met them once and interviewed them. But yeah, I have, I have all the stuff. And he's like, he's like, can you write us a, a, a piece that doesn't have anything that's, in the MR, I'm like absolutely because I had so much, I'd interviewed them like, I mean I want to say at least two sixty minute tapes and they're all talking it was hilarious you know and we we're all still friends too that's crazy we really, they're they're remarkable guys really 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 decent human beings you know, and um, I always said it should have been them not Nirvana but oh well, <laughs> but uh, anyway mud honey so then that's that's how this Thrasher job started and then they paid me they paid, yeah. I mean if you wrote an article for Thrasher you got paid like. Seventy-five dollars, hundred and twenty-five dollars. Like it was really, you know. Yeah. Uh, bear in mind, if your rent's four hundred a month and you're getting a hundred from writing a paragraph, that's, you know what I mean. Like yeah. it was really lucrative. And then they gave you fucking hoodies and <laughs> skate decks and trucks and you know, I uh, so much Thrasher stuff, you know. And uh, it was great. So then Thrasher that opened doors. Now once I started writing for Thrasher. You could get in anywhere, and the I Beam, the Kennel Club, um, you know, uh, the Covered Wagon Saloon, uh, the Night Break on Hate Street. All those venues were open, and there, and you could easily see a good band, not even just an okay band, but a good band four or five nights a week back then, late eighties, early nineties, and it was it's really a, kind of a golden era. I I, I find myself uh, being uh, really. Um, drawn I, I'm melancholy about it I guess I really nostalgic. very very nostalgic about that period because you had the you know you had the fluid and you had you know and, and again you know the aforementioned I mean I saw Nirvana open for Bad Mother Goose at the Covered Wagon Saloon I mean I saw just remark I saw Soundgarden open for Tragic Mulatto like you know what I mean it's, it was so wildly disproportionate but those bands were starting out and I saw like just some of the best stuff um, ever and and in the smallest m- most intimate venues I'm really happy now of course in Pittsburgh um, you know I started so Real Enemy my first band was in 1983 then, then Half-Life was 84 to 88 
and um, we opened for everybody. I mean, we played with everybody. We played with them. If the Minutemen came, we played with them. If Sam Hain came, we played with them. I mean, like a normal scene would have a band much more suited to open for the Minutemen, and then like some spooky <laughs> kids more suited to open for Sam Hain. But we were basically it. You know, there were times when we were like the only band, and then there were some other bands. And uh, you know, I had a label called Mind Cure. And we would put out, you know, uh, tapes. You know, we would put out, because it was easier to put out a tape. And there were other bands, and we put out. And uh, recently, very recently, in the last three years, this guy Mike Siemens in uh, Pittsburgh uh, has Mind Cure Records now, and he uh, meticulously, like, reissued everything on vinyl oh, wow. for the first time and, and wisely hired me to write the liner notes. Yeah, uh, and, and so I wrote these, you know, these really elaborate liner notes, like, really you know dense That's comprehensive awesome. i really yeah i really my memory for the 80s is really really good my memory for last week is not great <laughs> I, I i i can't tell you the name of the last person i sold a car to i can't i i really can't but but i but i can tell you what like husker du were wearing in in uh, on uh, april 28th 1983 when we opened for them I can, what were they wearing uh well 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 bob was wearing a checkered button-down shirt and jeans with a hole in the knee. Grant Hart was wearing uh, a, a wife beater while he was playing and, and these weird sort of purplish shorts. And, uh, and Greg was also wearing a button-down shirt, but it was tucked in, which I thought was interesting, and jeans and like a pretty nice pair of tennis shoes. Yeah. Anyway, they, I mean, they were very normal guys. Who's could do? I mean, you know, gay, except for the one with the giant mustache was straight. Huh. Yeah. So they were the opposite of. They broke every cliche, mustache wise. Uh, anyway, anyway. I don't really get them. They never... Really, really great guys. I Friends. I showed up in Andrew Earl uh, of Magnet wrote a book about. Husker Du uh, about three years ago now and he interviewed me and my story of me watching Bob Mould take a bath uh, ended up in this book about Husker Du and I love that I love being a footnote to history I love it you know my name keeps showing up in these books punk rock books and I, I'm glad because I was there the most common thing I hear is god damn it I wish I would interviewed you first your memory is so much you know they'll interview every and then they get me at the end and then they have to like wedge me in there you know because I, I am a footnote but to, to the history, but my memory for it is, is really, really good. Um, I never smoked pot. I, I credit that. I think pot is just, is ridiculous. You know, I really do. I, I, I don't know why you would want to do something that robbed you of your ambition. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you have all, let's do all this. Wait, here, get, no, no, let's not do anything. Like, why would you do that? It doesn't make sense. So anyway, likewise, then on the other hand, I never want to take speed either. I was never like, I need this to go do it. I, I, whatever the proper amount of just natural motivation was, I had it. Thank God. Well, some people aren't yeah. aren't so lucky. So some, I, some people need to turn it down and some people need yeah. to well, bring I, it up. I, I guess I was just right, you know, maybe. <laughs> well, not everybody wouldn't agree with that. I'm sure I'm, sure I'm like way too intense for some people. That's but true. At there, times. There's some people that would probably say, my could, my could use a hit. Yeah, oh, for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. But but so anyway, so, you know, in the, so I was used to being around bands and people and, and everything in Pittsburgh. But when I got here, it was this other level of, you know, uh, you know, everybody everybody played in San Francisco. You know, yeah. so I really, and I finally got to see bands that I kind of always wanted to see, and they played here. And you know, bands that missed Pittsburgh. We often had to drive to D.C. or Cleveland. You know, the one the one time I saw the Ramones, actually I saw them twice. They did play in Pittsburgh, but not till years later. 
uh, we went to Cleveland to see them, and the Pagans opened, so I got this, it was crazy, I mean, like, every, you never know, like, we went up to, I was roadieing for Husker Du, and they, uh, I went with them up to Cleveland, because they were playing with the fall, and I saw the fall, oh, Husker Du opened for the fall, like, the night after Real Enemy opened, for, it was crazy stuff, I mean, like, every night was just remarkable back then, and, and I don't know if it still is, I mean, I'm kind of convinced if we went out, we wouldn't find that level of, you know, like, I blame the internet. Yeah, I don't know when the last time... When was the last time it would have been really great? Like, when AFI were at Gilman, Screw 32. Like, that era was pretty exciting. There was, like, a lot of young punk bands. And yeah. th that was probably, like, the last. And then if you were... If you if your taste ran different, you could... There was all that lookout stuff. You know, you could go see the Peaches and whoever, whatever. And there was a lot of good bands in, in that era. Like, Fits of Depression and fluff and all i mean there was just good bands and and now I'm, I'm not saying there's not good bands i love warm soda and ty siegel and anything matthew melton does and i I, mean, I still keep up i mean i certainly i hope so but then you know like some of the bands i like then are still to get like the muffs just made a good record and i mean there's good bands i mean there's it's out there i just i mean I, but you know i'm gonna be 52 <laughs> next next month i don't know i don't know how long i'm supposed to you know stand in the back you know nursing a lukewarm beer because i can only afford one all night you know i don't know how much longer i could have kept that up but um and anyway um so yeah so when i got out here i'm very I, I, yeah nostalgic is the right word i'm very nostalgic for that period and that's where gearhead started because i was already writing for thrasher and i was writing for mrr and uh i just saw i wanted to do my own thing i got edited pretty hard at thrasher uh i remember ray anderson who incidentally died today sonny anderson's dad who was uh holy sea lights in the 60s he uh if you ever see fillmore posters it says lights by holy sea that was ray and, and his wife uh joan and they're they're both dead he just died today and like he oil lights yeah like they would project yeah, that crazy yeah, yeah, yeah. light he invented yeah. that he was the one who figured out if you put them on with the, heat with the they would like faces right yeah yeah so, i totally want to buy like a rig and like, like yeah yeah side overhead, note, like, overhead projector if you use the right, right combination of see i he, have like a ghetto one like, like goddamn it not like he could have taught you you know i mean until today until apparently. today so anyway right he um uh, uh Ray told me, he said, yep, yeah, no. He said, no, he gave me this amazing piece of advice. He said, when you're writing an article, start strong and end strong. He's like, make the first sentence really strong and end real hard. And he goes, and actually, you know, like, kind of whatever's in the middle doesn't matter as much. Like, get your points across early and late. And he goes, because they're going to edit you. He's like, almost give them something to edit. Man, was he right. Huh. You know, like, once I did that, I'd give them my... Because they paid by the word, right? Mm -hmm. So I would give them my 125 words that print 75, whatever it was, but that what they cut, it, it 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 didn't matter. It was like extraneous. That was like some really good advice that he gave me. But um, so he yeah. So uh, I I I noticed that. Well, first of all, there was, in the same way that in '84, I I ran out and got a Misfits tattoo for fear of no one remembering the Misfits. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I called Glenn. I'm like, Glenn, I got a Crimson Ghost tattoo. And he said, and I'll never forget it. Cool. Now there's like five. <laughs> so I have a documented one of the first five Misfits tattoos. Um, he had one. Doyle had one. Henry Rollins had one. The singer of Painful Discharge had one on his neck. Nobody remembers Painful Discharge. I do. And then me. And I think there was probably name. more. Now, how the hell do we know that there wasn't some kid in Japan or something? We don't know. But first 10, I think, is safe. I got it years before Cliff Burton from metallica certainly anyway anyway so so uh um uh 
I, so I started, I started, I was, a, when I got out here, I was really interested in going to like the drag races and like the Jim Davis Memorial Drags they used to have on Memorial Day weekend at Sears Point. And they would bring out Pure Hell and it's all front engine rails and all that. And everybody would bring out these muscle cars and there was just cars, cars, cars everywhere. And I, and in Pittsburgh, there's not, yeah. I mean, there's rust. Christ, my neighbor, Mr. Souls, when we were kids, he had a Super B. And uh, it was awesome, you know. It was this, you know, 70 Super B. And um, in 1994, my little town of Hermony had our centennial. We became 100 years old, and I went home, and there were parade. You know, it's exactly how you imagined. Firemen's Parade, cheesy, you know, Boy Scouts marching down Main Street and all that. You know, streamers in the in the spokes of their bikes, sparkle. Exactly. This is the most Norman Rockwell-esque thing you can imagine. So I go, so I'm there, and I see Mr. Souls. I'm like, whatever happened to that Superman? He goes, don't you remember? And I go, no. And he goes, by 73, it was completely rusted out. There was nothing left of it because he left it outside in Pennsylvania. It was just wow. gone, you know? And I think I think that's probably why muscle cars, are, people like fetishize them. That's They made quite a lot, but there was, well, then you have, you know, kids wrap them around trees and all that, too. You know, it's, you know, you put a, put a 17-year-old kid in a car with 425 horsepower. You know, he's going he's gonna to hurt himself, probably. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, so I got out here and it was just cars, cars, cars. And then the music, I noticed that, um, like Eddie Spaghetti, Eddie from the Super Suckers had a Hot Wheels sticker on his bass. Stuff like that, like was starting to show up, like 60s imagery. And bands had, you know, like the New Bomb Turks had a song called Drag Strip Riot. And, and there was like, there was, the music was, was it, a lot of the a lot of the '90s garage was interested in like '60s culture, mm-hmm. and nowhere more so than <clears throat> the Mummies and the Phantom Surfers and the Trash Women. All these bands were here; they were our local bands. So I'm in this scene with like long hair, so I have my grunge hair, and uh, you know, and it was long. I mean, it was really long because I didn't cut my hair for five years. So you know, and I and I'm going to see like Untamed Youth, and they're like, "Okay, hippie," you know, like <laughs> it was like really like, "What? Who's this weird dude hanging around?" But um, so. I got the idea to do Gearhead. In 91, I asked the guys, I interviewed Gas Huffer, and I asked them to do shirts for me, and Don Blackstone and Joe Newton did shirts. So I actually had T-shirts and stickers almost two years before number one came out. I just didn't know how to make a magazine. I interviewed the Digits, and uh, that was an interesting interview. Rick got up and walked out. Um, yeah. I did said, you say something shitty? Yeah, no, I just said that. So so there was a, they had a, what I thought was a faux rivalry with Urge Overkill. Huh. And, uh, and and Nate Cato from Urge Overkill, I said, I, they were staying at my house. And I said, I'm going to interview Rick from the Digits. And he's like, yeah, he that guy stole all his shtick from me. The suits, everything. So we sit down and interview Rick. And I go, so, I, so Nate Cato tells me you stole 100% of your shtick from him. <laughs> what do you want to say about that? And he's like, this interview is over. And just walks oh away. <laughs> so that was my first interview for Gary. Wow. Yeah. But he, um, but you know, Rick, I'm like, I Rick, feel Rick. like that's kind of a confirmation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was like, Rick, Rick, Rick. And he came back and he talked to me. And it was, it was funny. It was a good interview. You know, it's, a, it's in Gearhead number one, you know, word for word. But it took me like two years to figure out how to actually publish a magazine. And the reason it had a record in it was because I worked at a record distributor. So by now, I'd gone from working at a record store into record distribution. And I'm like, if I put a record in it, I'll know how to sell it. If I don't know how to really sell a magazine, I'm like, I could have went to MRR. And he did help me. Uh, uh, Tim made the call to what Doug from Tower Records and said, you know, you should buy this. And, you know, he did help me. He, he helped. And we laid Gearhead number one out at, when I say we, I mean me and Nick Rubenstein. He was like my, he did the first three issues. We were like inseparable. 
uh, in that early era, 80, uh, or excuse me, 92, 93, 94, up through 95. And then he got a job at Epitaph being the art director and he moved to LA. And then I had a kind of a wilderness period uh, and, and then uh, <laughs> trying to find a layout guy. And then the answer was, uh, the call came out. It was uh, uh, Chrisser, you know, who owned Lookout, did layout and Chris Imlay started. And, you know, like I would, in one issue, I might have like three or four different people doing layout, you know, and uh, as long as the, and as long as I was overseeing it, I could keep it pretty consistent looking. But uh, so um, uh, I, that's why I'd had a record. And I remember the I saw so I saw Gas Huffer and I uh, they did a cover of uh, Bad Guy Reaction by the Rosillos. And I was like, oh, man, I want to put that out. So I was going to put out a flexi disc. Mm -hmm. Then I found out the only place you can get them is it's called Evatone Sound Sheets back in the day. And they were just kind of like pricks to deal with. And I was like, geez, you know, because I thought a flexi would be good, you know. And then I thought, well, no, I'll I'll do a record. And then the people, other people who had records and zines, they had like a 45 and it was like stapled in on like a newsprint. It never worked, you know. So I said, well, if I'm going to do a record, I'll do a sleeve. And I'm like, well, if I'm going to do a sleeve, I got to do it in a, I got to do it in like a picture sleeve with a bag. And then the, how's that going to attach? I'm like, well, now, well, I guess I'll just put in the bag and I'll put that in a bag. <laughs> so, so I ended up like accruing all this extra cost, you know, trying to, just trying to protect the record, you know, like I didn't want the record to be thought of as like a throwaway and I wanted it to have its own value. And the reason they were split singles is because Supercharger, uh, Greg Lowry, who later did Rip Off Records, he found out that I was doing a single of Gas Huffer doing Bad Guy Reaction. He said, well, you know, we covered Mystery Action by the Rizzillos. And I thought, well, that would be great. We'll have two Rizzillos covers on one single. And we put that out. And um, that's how that started. And then I thought, this is good. Two bands is good. Like you have mm-hmm. twice the chance of somebody picking it up because they like the band, you know. And then I just, whoever, then it was whoever I liked at the time or whoever fell into my lap. I went to a party at uh, Anthony from the... Uh, Leather Upper's house and uh, uh, Clawhammer and the, and uh, the Red Ants were playing in his house, right. and I was like, you know, Clawhammer had a bunch of records out at that point, and and uh, and um, they were on they were on Sympathy, and I think they were just getting signed to Epitaph, and then and then the Red Ants, and and so so Terry from the Red Ants was married to John from Clawhammer, and I th- I thought this would be cool, like have you guys ever done a split record together? And I'm like, no, and I said, well let, let's let's do that. And then, you know, things would just fall into my lap like that. Then then I would try to tie it in. Number three had this massive interview with the Fastbacks where I interviewed all, all seven, 13 of their ex-drummers, I think it is, and I was so, which they really liked. And they and the first one was Duff McKagan, you know, of course, who was in Guns N' Roses at the time, and he was the first one to return my call. He was, like, so excited to do an interview about being in the Fastbacks and, and, and nothing about G&R or anything, and... Uh, it was ridiculous, you know. But anyway, so, um, so, and then, and then they did, uh, so they gave me this great single where they do three UK subs covers where the three, the three singers, each one sings their own song and there's three different drummers. <laughs> like they did it on purpose. So it would tie in with the magazine. It was number three, you know, with the Hot Wheels on the cover. Like really, really, really exciting era. It's like 95. And then the Mises were like, my favorite local band and then they did that and then we were like well the Mises were the Fastbacks were in town so we did a photo shoot where they're playing Monopoly against each other like anything I could think of I could do it was the, uh-huh. the just the ultimate creative outlet you know and then I got you know um, very proud to had Peter Bag and Coop and Frank Kozik and you know Brian Clark aka Les Toil and uh, of course Robert Williams uh, Von Franco 
Dirty Donnie, Rock and Jelly Bean, you all did covers, you know, it's, it's really kind of cool, you know, like some of the, the like the top talent, you know, yeah. uh, contributed, they wanted to be a part of it, and uh, then the bands came, and I, it's just amazing that I ended up doing uh, Southern Culture on the Skids, and, you know, uh, Mud Honey, uh, the Melvins, you know, the Donnas, of course, you know, all that, and Rock from the Crypt, and the helicopters it was really cool like it, it it became its own cool thing like eventually people just wanted to be a part of it you know and a lot of people offered to do records that i i couldn't because i'm doing like one a year you know and it was hard to hard to know who to who to get but i'm really i'm really proud of it you know so going up from one to ten so is this number 10 of your podcast yeah that's great because number 10 is like the gearhead that's the robert williams cover and Rocket from the Crypt Helicopters, you know, came out in 1999, and that was like, you know, that was like the turning point, too. Then then at that point, it was decided to split the record, take the records out of the magazine. Because at that point, I'm, I'm selling like 13,000 magazines, and I'm pressing 13,000 records. Well, you don't get a price break on records. Like, if you were printing magazines, and you were printing 13,000, they would, it, so much of the cost was in the setup back then, mm-hmm. and getting the, the, you know, they had to... They had to make film, and then they had to go to make plates for the. It was printed on a big web press, yeah. you know, just like in a movie in the forties, like ding, 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 like you know, like that, 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 you know, they show like the headline spinning and the big web press. It's exactly that. It was a giant web press, and um, so uh, it occurred to me that thirteen thousand people didn't probably didn't even have turntables, yeah. and I was kind of like, well, how many people aren't even hearing this record at this point? So that was the decision was made to to split it, you know. So I was doing it for about 10 years before I started uh, having a label. And it, it was, uh, then then once the label started, it was it was very hard to do the magazine for a while because the, yeah. the label took a lot of my time. So in, in 2000, you have no issue of Gearhead. And then in 2001, you have number 11, the Bulletproof cover one that mm-hmm. sold out. I mean, that's like, I got one out and then there's years and then it's, uh, you don't see it come back out until I think oh five, I think is twelve finally. But you know we had a thing. It was a Roth tribute issue, and he died years earlier, and it took yeah. like years to get it out. And you know so there was a lot of, a uh, lot going on. And and then and then you know actually the clothing part of it was a big deal. I mean, uh, you know I would have, I don't know twelve fourteen designs at any given time: hoodies, hats, stickers, patches, and you know that that's the bread and butter really. So you know you, you had to had to keep up with the clothing and and the and and the and the records. I think I think in in two thousand uh, nine nine records came out on on the Gearhead label, and then by uh, there were some years where there were twelve, thirteen, fourteen. You know, like a little more than one a month coming out and then you're trying to do the magazine too plus the clothing and it was it, you know it got a little bit crazy there for a while and 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 <laughs> never made enough money to like buy a car or anything you know right. like there's no like because as soon as you make some you have to you always owe someone it was this weird thing like we pulled out enough to pay the rent yeah. and that was about it and 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 so there was never money in it uh and that's 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 part of the reason why I wanted to I well eventually as you know uh w- when we were well we were having such a hard time you sold like one ad for me remember like yeah. nobody would buy an ad like at all like in 08 it was so bad yeah. it went, it was so hard like the big 3 almost went under people forget like the oh, big yeah. 3 almost went under it's it's almost unthinkable but it happened and and there were and there were casualties you know they killed 
Oldsmobile and Pontiac and Mercury right. and you know there's casualties of, of the whole thing and, and Plymouth you know like brands that were forever are gone you know and it's but they everybody had to streamline and pull themselves up by their bootstraps <laughs> or whatever but um, I lost you know um, Mopar Harley Davidson Cherry Bomb Flowmaster and there was no nobody and, and, and some tattoo parlor or barbershop it, it's those ads, you, they couldn't buy an ad expensive enough to pay to print it. Yeah. You know, and it was just, I, I wanted to just, like, go out with dignity. But unfortunately, we know that that didn't happen. <laughs> so, I, I don't I don't know how to lead into all that, but uh, did I? <laughs> yeah, I guess, like, <laughs> well, you picked up a partner somewhere along the way, and then... Yes, in 2000, uh, I, I was approached, uh, Mike's partner, Michelle, she worked at Mordam Records and she wanted to have a record label and she said, I heard you want to start a label and she was like, If you if 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 you partner with me, I already work here and I'll have a distribution deal built in. Mm-hmm. And, and that's that's what it really was. Like her background was all in record distribution. She had never made a record or made anything, but she knew distribution. So and and was willing to put up some money. Mm-hmm. So we each put in uh let me think about this. I'm gonna put in. The, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I want to say we each put in five grand. I think. I think that's what it was. And then we started, you know, putting out records. And um, so that was rolling. And I, it, the way it was, was she was my partner on the label, but I was still doing the merch and uh, magazine, and everything. And then um, uh, years later, uh, she was like, "If we put this all under one thing." You know, then the money that the label's making would carry the other mm-hmm. branches and everything, and um, and th- that seemed reasonable, I guess, at the time. And I was, uh, I was basically, you know, um, well, you know, I guess, I guess what I want to say is, if, if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is, mm-hmm. you know. And I, a lot of stuff was promised to me, and and it was just, you know, like I won't be involved. You put out whatever you want, I'll just pay for it. And that, of course, that didn't happen. And she wanted to take more and more of a role in, in being involved, and uh, and I did. I, I, I was, you know, a couple bands she liked. Uh, we, we actually signed two, I think. So everything on the label, like, out of all of it, certainly the helicopters, the hives, the New Bomb Turks, the demons, the dragons, the wild hearts were my friends. That all came from me. And she had, she signed uh, Red Planet and Guido Guido Hustler were the two that came from her. Not Not bad bands or anything, just... You know that's 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 like the ratio of, of how that all worked out and then so in in oh so anyway we were it was um we didn't really get along in see eye to eye the whole thing was like a big fight the yeah. whole time anyway and then so in oh six we decided to split and i was like well take the label and i'll take what i brought in i'll take the magazine and i'll take the merchandise and so what from five more years that's what we did so I published, and then that's like when, uh, so I think I think Gearhead 12, 13, and 14 came out during when the label was going. And then 15, the one with the choppers on the cover is the mm-hmm. first one that I did. 15, 16, the Jelly Bean one, 17, the one with Guido on the cover, uh, 18, with you know Gambino and Roger Mayer on the cover. I put those out, that was on my era. And then we had that bad economic downturn, and I, you know, and then it got really prohibitively expensive to, to print, and the advertising dried up. And I was going to try to do 20. That was my goal. I have, uh, I still have 19. I have my issue in the can of that. It's Wiesner cover. He painted a cover of interviews with all, and I was going to try to put it out, and it just, it never happened. And I was going to do 20, because I thought it'd be a good bookend. 
like yeah. 10 with records, 10 without, then I was just going to stop. And I figured like, no matter how hard it is to do, I could do one more, you know, I can, yeah. you know, and, and uh, so I was definitely ending it. I was, I, I didn't lose interest in it. It just, it didn't make sense anymore yeah. uh, at all. You know, uh, you, you know, you have, you have people who, uh, I'm sure Kobe Garowitz has a job, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure these guys have jobs. I didn't have a job. Like, I think my biggest mistake was just trying to make a living off of it and just, and you can't, I mean, it was, I'm in the Bay area. I'm in the most yeah. expensive. Like we, were, we were talking about that earlier. Like I'm 31. So my entire life you were self-employed and that's, yeah, that's, that's huge. Yeah, no, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, from 18 to 48 yeah I didn't have health insurance or social security or for nothing you know like I had 30 solid years of doing my own thing through punk rock playing in bands publishing the magazine and I did other stuff too you know I wrote for Rotter's Journal I wrote books you know I wrote that book about Robert Williams I wrote a book with Cole Foster uh, you know and uh, which is an honor that stuff is great and and uh, but you know it was doing the magazine that led to all that I mean if you you know, the few times people have ever asked me for advice or whatever, I would say, well, just do it. Do whatever it is you want to do. Do it. Because you don't know what it will lead to. So I would start like, you know, I'm like, I did that. So we interview Robert Williams, for instance, and it ends up being like this epic interview to the point where motor books are saying, like, you're the expert on this guy. And Williams is going, let's get Lavella. He knows my whole thing did that start from your head was, what was that the interview that turned into oh absolutely right. and and frankly when i was writing the book there were gaps i mean bob is amazing like you know you go to his house you turn on the mic and he goes is, is there a click is is the ticking of that, that clock on the bug yeah he has like a grandfather <laughs> clock you know and he stops the pendulum so there's no noise at all like you want to talk about the cleanest yeah. you know interview tapes ever you know and when you're working with motor books, they have transcription services. They send it off. They transcribe right. it. So when it comes back, they, of course, they don't know what you're talking about. So like, you know, like, uh, you know, like the 32 Ford High, 32 Ford High Boy turns into 32 Ford Pie Boy, you know, or so whatever they think you right. said. And then you have to go, oh, Jesus. Then you have to. So you have to make all the car stuff back into what it actually is. But, yeah, no, that, that led directly from Gearhead and ditto the uh, Cole thing, you know, interview Cole, and he's same, you know, he's like, let's, you know, but 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 they, Motorbooks, they took a huge hit in, like, 08, you know, they used to have a thing where uh, there were, there was 21 feet of Barnes & Noble dedicated to car books, and they got cut to seven, which means two-thirds of that went away. They used to do 12 books a month. And then I think it got cut down to like 24 a year or something. I mean, don't quote me on that. Well, quote me, I guess I'm saying it. But, but it was something, it got, it got cut so hard, you know, like publishing got hit so hard in that era. And then I thought, well, you know, now what? And, uh, you know, and, and so I, uh, you know, I decided to, you know, try to get a job. And uh, I, I was basically unemployable. I mean, I think Josie's the only person who ever gave me a job. Uh, ever because everyone thought well you want to do your thing and you're never going to take any job seriously of course that worked out because it was very part-time and I think I could focus for one day yeah. on something else um, which is helping you know some poor bastard who drove in from Vallejo get a can of pomade or whatever it was <laughs> you know <laughs> but uh, you know I, I really I really enjoyed that and you know I'm very fond of your mom as you know 
Uh, I just really like, I just, you guys were, were that was really great. Anyway, well, the, 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 the whole thing with the, 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 okay, so I split from the label, and then my ex-partner, she went bankrupt. She went bankrupt. Mm -hmm. And we had legal documents that said, like, that I had co-signed for loans, specifically a loan from Bank of America for $135,000 is what it was. And, and I had a legal document that said that we split the business, mm -hmm. but they could care less because they have a legal document with your signature on it. Mm -hmm. So when she went bankrupt, they all came after me and my house was under siege. I mean, I had those collectors like flashing like those 100,000 candlelight deer spotters into the windows and right. pounded on the door with flashlights, scaring the shit out of my neighbors. Yeah. Real hassle, you know. So anyway, I figured out like, so she went bankrupt. They came after me. And I, I think it was 135 grand plus fees to, to B of A. And then I think it was 38,000 to Wells Fargo plus more. So anyway, suddenly I find myself being sued for a quarter of a million dollars. Wow. Okay, so now I paid all my debts. When we split up, I said whatever debts are related to merchandise, so we owed cinder block whatever money for mm -hmm. the last batch of shirts. I owed Lucky Mule, Courtney Callahan, one of my dearest friends. I owed him money for shirts and he always man he printed for me on the worst of times right. i mean he's a goddamn saint and i made sure he got every goddamn penny i ever owed him i mean he we're more than square you know and uh and whoever and i paid them off it wasn't easy there was like labels that were made to ship and and i i, I kept that like i owed punks with presses money i owed we had that one shirt that was a, a, a heat transfer mm -hmm. and and should never paid that guy so i inherited that because it was a shirt you know, like that kind of thing. So I paid, like I worked and worked and worked and paid off all those debts. I was at zero. I was fine. Mm -hmm. And everything was going okay. And then I got hit with this lawsuit. Mm -hmm. And then simultaneously, like, you know, the economy, you know. So I had to, I had to go bankrupt. Even though when I, when I went in to talk to the bankruptcy attorney, they looked at my credit score and they're like, why are you going bankrupt? You're fine. And I'm like, why? Well, I'm, I'm not throwing good money after bad. I'm not paying these debts that aren't even my debts legally, aren't my debts. So that, uh, that happened. And uh, I didn't know the whole story at the time. I guess she lost her house and everything. Like she really, you know, she took a hit. And then I, I, uh, I had nothing to lose. My bankruptcy was probably the easiest one ever. I don't own a home. I don't own a car. I, you know, like I, I have nothing. I have no money in the bank. I have no assets, no stocks. Uh, these underwear I'm wearing, Kathy probably bought for me in the mid 90s, you know, or, oh, but no, before 05, certainly, you know, like I wear, you know what I mean? Like I'm this shirt, my aunt Tootsie gave me, uh, these shoes, my friend Alexi sent me. I mean, I don't have any, I don't buy anything. I don't have anything. I really don't, you know? So, I mean, I have, when people come to my house and they see, oh, what's all this stuff? I'm like, it was all thrifted. Everything was, as you know, everything was a buck or two, you know, it's, I, I've never, that's why I stopped with the tiki mugs. I bought them. I had a, I had a, I had a, I had a dollar limit for years, and then at one point I raised it as high as five. I think the last tiki mug I bought, I paid five bucks for, but it was one I really wanted. And then I'm like, I'm done with this. And then I had so many, and then you know, some sold for hundred bucks or more, you know. But I had all this stuff. I mean, I always had a knack for buying the right shit. I really did. I got to say, like, I was always slightly ahead of every curve and bought it, and then I always had whatever people wanted and were willing to pay for, which has sustained me. That's how I've lived, you know. And uh, so anyway, so the bankruptcy, so I go. So then, uh, what is it? Oh, was it? So in 2012, I really was hurting. You know, I, I was just like, 
the, the magazine hadn't come out since 09. Mm. I had no, you know, whatever. I was still setting up at shows. And if, if I did a decent car show, I could eat that month. Right. Like I could pay my rent and eat. But that, that big show at the Cow Palace that yeah. used to have, when they quit that, it killed me. Because I had this, I didn't have a show from, oh Christ, October to Paso Robles. It was brutal. Right. That was like, that, the winters were so hard to get through. And I had to sell a lot of records. I mean, I lost my... I used to have everything on Discord, Exclaim, Danger House. It's all gone. You know, I had to sell everything to pay the rent, you know, just to try to get by. But I was still thinking that I could turn it around. And, you know, the, you know, I had a lot of faith in my own ability to keep it going. But, like, the, the world had other ideas, you know. And then getting sued like that was just so brutal. So it just, it just forced me into bankruptcy. And then, then what happened was, so during this whole time, uh, Mike's partner had applied for the trademark for Gearhead and got it. And at one point, so then I got served like you don't own Gearhead anymore. That's what happened. So uh, you could say it's a, a, it was like a Machiavellian, I think. It was like her idea kind of all along. And and I haven't ever gone out and told anyone not to support Gearhead. Um, it's really, I'm sure you can imagine how conflicted I am. Because sure. it's like all that work I did on it. And it had all this goodwill, but then it had bad will too. Like I didn't, you know, there were, I'm sure there were times where somebody ordered something that I didn't have or couldn't afford to send or, you know, like I, I'm sure there was dissatisfied people, but it was all purely economic. It was just really, there was never, I mean, there's a term, uh, severely undercapitalized. <laughs> and, that, and that's exactly what I was. I was severely undercapitalized. So, you know, I never, I was never able to like go out and get a loan or throw money at it or do anything and you know i'd borrow money from people pay them back when it comes out i'll pay you blah, blah. you know it was always that it was just it was such a crazy hand-to-mouth existence and like i say i was getting ready to wrap it up anyway i really was and i remember like um i remember laying in bed and i had nowhere to go and nothing to, no money or anything and i remember thinking like it would be so cool to to have a job like it would be so cool to like get up and maybe like take a shower, shave, you know, put on some clothes, you know, and go to a job. Like I, I couldn't imagine, you know, I wanted a job so bad. I really did. That's, I'm not being cute or clever. I, I fantasized about being employed. I really thought it would be so cool to have a job, you know? And then I thought, well, what can I do? You know? And, 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 uh, so I was living with my girlfriend at the time, Greta, uh, was very supportive of all my r- ridiculousness for years. But I think eventually it reached a point where, I mean, she was working. She was working at Babeland and, you know, and, and still is. She moved to Seattle where they have stores and uh, she's doing really well and everything. But we, we, we it was just, it, it, you know, the relationship kind of wrapped up. But I, I'm sure I accelerated it by having no money ever under any circumstances, you know. But, but, uh, so anyway, she, um, she, so I decided to go to nursing school. I don't know if you remember all that. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I went, so I went and well, I went to be a CNA. My ex-wife paid for it. I was working a couple days a week for the fuzzy dude people. And, mm-hmm. and I was, I was taking care of Laura's mother, Mary, who had Alzheimer's. She's since passed away. And apparently I did such a good job taking care of this woman with Alzheimer's. I mean, like she wouldn't get out of bed for anybody. Mm-hmm. I'd come, she'd jump out, get dressed, and be like, your boyfriend's here, and she, ooh, you know, and she would just go anywhere, and I, and, and they were kind of, I don't want to say they were 
they, they were overwhelmed because they have this woman with Alzheimer's and she wants to be with them at all times and they're trying to run a business. My job was basically to distract her and she liked dogs. Well, you know me and dogs, but I took her to the dog park every day. I mean, like, let's go to the dog park and we watched dogs play. You know, it was great. So I was getting paid eight bucks an hour or whatever to babysit a woman with Alzheimer's at a dog park. And I'm thinking there's, there's got to be more to life than this. I think I think I could probably do something better than this, you know. But, but anyway, that led to the idea of becoming a CNA. So this is like uh, 2011, 2012. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so, yeah, so I went. And so my ex-wife, who's a nurse, uh, who's an RN, Mara, she was like, I'll pay. She's like, how, how much is it? And she just paid with a credit card. I'm like, what do I owe you? I'll pay you back. She's like, forget it. You know, like she's been working as a nurse for years. Her dad, when she moved to California, her dad bought her a house so she wouldn't have to worry about paying rent. Jesus. So, yeah, so like, everybody I know, people I know fall over, if they trip backwards, and fall into a pile of money. I swear to God, except me, I don't know how I've avoided it all these years. Uh, my landlord, Bill Silvera, the famous Bill Silvera, once said, one of these days, you're going to wake up and you're going to be a millionaire. I don't know how, but I'm positive. So that, I still have that hope in the back of my, you know. It's really only through Bill's, not raising my rent for 15 years that I could still live here. Yeah. He eventually had to, and I understand why. And uh, But it's been... So, of course, now I'm right at whatever I get paid, pays the rent, car payment, insurance, phone, cable, and I have hmm, 100 bucks left, 200 bucks for food. I'm still exactly <laughs> hand-to-mouth, but at least it's a better, ex- much better existence. You know, it involves having a, a, a 2016 Mustang. Which, which, which I bought to rebuild my credit. They say that's the best way to get your credit back yeah. score is to make a car payment on time. So I just have it come on automatically. And I, I haven't checked my credit score lately, but I'm sure it's better than <laughs> post-bankruptcy. You know, it's a, it's a year now. Anyway, uh, uh, so I, I uh, was going to be a CNA, and I, I couldn't pass the test. They have this crazy test that's uh, it, um, the, 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 uh, the Red Cross gives this test. There's a written test, which I killed. It's like 150 questions. I got two wrong. But then you have to do these skills. You have to change a bedpan and change a sheet, you know. And you have to do it with like a dummy laying in the bed. And, and the first time I did it, I did, they said I didn't get the gate belt tight enough. And then the second time I did it, I took someone's pulse with my thumb, which is a no-no. You take it with your fingers, not your thumb. And I got it right, but I put my thumb. So they, you know, so I kept going. And you get three chances to pass this test. And I'm like, I, so I failed twice. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, and they're like, okay, come back. We're going to work with you. And, they, and I mean, I, I got to say, the school was terrible. The woman who did it was never there. She, they were, they were Muslims, and they were, they were lovely people. But they were, she was working as an RN, trying to teach classes. And she'd be like, "You guys just uh, learn amongst yourselves." Quote, you know, so what, what does that mean? So you know, so I wasn't really properly trained, and 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 the fact that I couldn't pass the test bared that out. You know, it's like. I did mistakes that no one ever told me not to do. And finally, they were going to help me. And right then, uh, I was at uh, Knob Hill Foods, and I ran into uh, Ron Amatone and his wife, Chris, uh, was a a mortician. She worked at Greer Family Mortuary. And I'm talking to him. I'm like, ah, you know, I'm trying to to become a nurse, but blah, blah, blah. And she's like, you know, we're hiring right now. And uh, so she goes... um, so uh, she said, here, uh, she's like the, the, the guy, who, the, the funeral director, his name is Ken Pierce. And I'm like, okay, well, ends up from Pittsburgh. Yeah. Freaking, <laughs> I could have went in there wearing overalls, you know. No, that's not true. But he's, but he, he's a nice guy, and, and he, uh, I eventually sold him a car, of course. Yeah. I, I will sell everyone a car eventually. 
my goal in life, everyone I've ever known will buy a car. And if they did, that'd sell a lot of cars. So, um, so, so anyway, Ken, so I go over there. So get this. So I have this interview for a mortuary, okay? Mm-hmm. And you have to wear a suit. Okay, the only suit I have is one that uh, Greta helped me get for uh, my friend Jeremy's wedding, mm-hmm. okay? And so Jared got married, and, and the suit had goddamn moth holes in it. And I go to put it on, and there's holes in it. And I was like, God damn it, you know? The, specifically, the right sleeve had holes. So I took a Sharpie, and I and I blackened. I, I made it so, like, if the uh-huh. hole moved, it would, at least was black underneath. And I did the interview. She, like, Sharpied all over your arm? No, 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 no. No, there's, like, a lining to the suit. Oh, okay. Like, they ate through the black, but okay. the lining is white. So you see these big white spots. So I blacked them out with a Sharpie. I'm like, fuck, you know? So I go to the interview. I mean, this is, like, how bad... <laughs> Jackie. This is how, why do you know what to do, you know? I, I go to the interview and I lean in right. I like lead right. I made sure he couldn't see my left arm. I sat in the chair. There were two chairs facing him and I picked the one where it looked naturally for me to be leaning, leading, you know, right. And I didn't want him to see that I had a big hole, you know? Hands up, he's from Pittsburgh. Or, well, he's not from Pittsburgh, but he did his, he went to mortuary school, college in Pittsburgh. And he went there, and he, he knew guys. He knew a guy from Harmony. He was crazy, and he was in a frat there. And, I mean, we, we have precious little in common, except for that he's a nice guy who gave me a job. And he wanted to pay me $10 an hour to drive a hearse. And I'm like, come on, man. You know, I'm like, I'm 48 or whatever. I'm like, really? And he was like, well, okay, I'll make it 12 and uh, and that way you'll take home like 10. And I said, okay, you know, I mean, I had to get paid more than Charlotte's Web to drive a hearse. I mean, I had to, right? Yeah. So I negotiated. So the best negotiation of my life, 12 bucks an hour, I was able to negotiate. So anyway, I mean, I don't know if you know what it involves driving a hearse, but I mean, you come out of the, the service. And I, so they owned another funeral home called uh, uh, Grant Miller. It's on, it's on Telegraph Avenue. Mm-hmm. And so they owned two. So I would do services of both. But Grant Miller was a Chinese funeral home. So I did Chinese funerals, which was fascinating. They put out these big shrines and all they, like, this crazy burn stuff. Those hell notes, they right? Bu- yes. Yeah. They, well, they line the coffin with money. Yeah. And if someone's young enough, they'll put real money in it. Yeah, but if they're older, that's the, that, there's hell money and they burn uh-huh. it. Well, there's a 55-gallon drum, but they don't just burn money. They have little houses, little servants, little cell phones, little cars. They have a little Mercedes. So they burn all that so the person has that in the afterlife. I mean, it was a fascinating job, you know, and, but, but they, it, was this, it was corporate. It was a corporate. They were owned by a, a, a corporation out of Houston. I don't know if you ever watched Six Feet Under, but it was exactly like that. Like a corporation tries to buy the little mom and pop funeral homes. And anyway, it's interesting because my, my very first job, my mother worked in a funeral home in Harmony. So I worked in a funeral home when I was eight. So I'd been walking through morgues and all that. So I, I had worked you know, in a funeral home before, many years earlier as a little kid. And I would carry the flowers up after the funeral and the funeral director, Joe Nichols, would slip me a five, which was like so much money when you're eight years old yeah. in 1972, three, whatever, you know. So anyway, he, um, so, I'm work, so I'm working at this funeral home and, and you're driving a hearse. So after the, you know, after the funeral, you know, they, they, put the, they put the coffin in the hearse and the Chinese funerals are really interesting. They, you had to back up. You had to go forward and back three times so the dead person knew they were dead, so they knew it was their last ride. Then they had a thing called a drive-by where you go by their house and you open the door for exactly 45 seconds so the deceased can get whatever they need out of the house. Wow. I mean, it's like, it's, it's superstition upon superstition. That's upon, really intense. Well, it's really intense. And they've been doing this for 
a lot longer than way before Columbus, you know, discovered America, <laughs> you know, supposedly, you know, before Leif Erikson was here, before anything. They've been doing these, these rituals. Or, I mean, they're like this ancient culture, you know. So, you, But anyway, you're in there, and, and usually the firstborn son rides with you in the hearse, and they they have to, like, they can't cry, and and they're holding usually like a large photograph of the deceased, and they get in there with you, and you're driving, and, and usually they break they're down. They're in the front seat with they're you? They're in the front seat with you. Only okay. one person goes with you, so you're driving, and they would they would break down in tears. They would just like, because they had been holding it in. Yeah. And and then you're like, you couldn't talk to the guy if you wanted to. I mean, right. you don't know if he he's speaks English or not. Right. And so you're driving, but you're driving, there's 70 people following you. You make one wrong turn, 70 Chinese <laughs> people are going the wrong way. So it's like, it's, it's like I mean, and, and I was kind of like, you know, fuck this, you know, like this is so much pressure for $12, you know? At and, any point, did you like, let's take a detour just to just Yeah, no, no, no. This? Oh my God, you'd be fired immediately <laughs> if you did anything wrong. Because apparently there's tons of people looking for this job, apparently. Anyway, I don't know. It sounds like a pretty sweet gig. It, it, it was. It was cool. The imagery was cool. What I learned about, uh, and, and you know, there was a lot of Filipino funerals at 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 Greer uh, family mortuary in uh, Alameda. The way they would have a funeral was so completely different from this, from this. And then I did like Irish, where it's stoic, and then they have this big wake, and everybody gets drunk. And the Italian ones, they go into the church, and they actually have the pall, you know, that they put over the cat, the whole thing. So I, I I've. I, the Chinese I, watched them watched them get cremated, right? Oh, I yeah, see. Yeah, oh, yeah. I had to do witness cremations. Yeah. That, you know what? That was the hardest thing, a witness cremation. Because really? you're Yes. Because, yeah, because you're there. It's usually just the parents on like a son. Then like they select like, so maybe like a boy who's 30 dies and the parents are only maybe in their 50s and then they have like a younger brother who's in his 20s and they're like he would press the button to fire up the, right. you know, yeah. the incinerator. Like you put him in there and it was, it was crazy, you know, and, uh, and and, and and they're all standing there and they're they're crying but then the, the, the dad can't cry and the mother's cry, you know and it's like and you're like god you know like they're he's burning his brother you know like the yeah. like the the reality of what was happening would hit you occasionally you had to you had to like really divorce because you're you're there in a suit you're 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 a representative of the funeral you right. you have to like be the one who's like and and you know you had to herd people like cattle they're a lot of times they're grieving they don't know where to go they're like here sit here sit here you know and 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 you would you, you would just try to help people get through this crazy thing you know it was a but I, but again I, I my personality was apparently uniquely qualified for it just like i was supposedly uniquely qualified to take care of alzheimer's patients right. and, and and become a alzheimer's nurse alzheimer's patients and the dead and the that's dead. who gets along that's who well gets, with you that's who gets me so yeah well you know ex sam hain roadie you know perfect job for next sam hain roadie driving a hearse so um but anyway so eventually uh there was this woman there named jenny who ran the the, the chinese funeral home and she was the cheapest she rivaled my boss of barrier records and tapes in cheapness now he died of cheapness he just dropped dead of of massive coronary because of how cheap but she'll, she'll never die because she knows how to make money and if she was dead she couldn't make money so but anyway she was the cheap the level of cheapness i've never seen anything like it uh to wit she after a funeral they, they you know they walk around with incense they walk and walk and you have to they come in beating pots and pans and so the dead person knows they're dead and they and they do all, and then they walk around with all this um, with with incense and everything, and it leaves little piles of incense all over the floor. And we had like a you know giant Kirby vacuum cleaner from fucking eighteen oh six, you know, giant, you know, and uh, and and she would and so she would turn the lights off, and I'm trying to vacuum in the dark, and I'd turn the lights, she'd come in, and I'd say, hey, and she'd go, if I could see, you could see, 
You know, she just yelled at me, like, very mean, you know? And I was like, man, fuck this. You know, like, why am I getting yelled at by, like, a skinny little Asian woman? I'm doing my best. You know, I'm doing absolutely my best here. And everyone there liked me. Now, the crew in Alameda, it's fun working at a funeral home because, you know, behind closed doors, they're laughing. They're making fun of shit. It's exactly what you would think. It's They have really great... Uh, senses of humor and everything. I think I signed a thing where I would never speak about any of this, by the way, which, whatever, you know, I'm not going back into that business. But, but anyway, so one day, so, 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 so go backwards to, uh, I told everyone in the world I knew I needed a job. I need a job, I need a job, I need a job. So my friend Joel Benjamin said, you should sell cars. And I went and I got an interview at Albany Ford Subaru and they didn't hire me, you know? But what I didn't know was two other people applied right before me and they were basically you know given the job and he told me my reason for, for not hiring was that I talked too much and he said you know in the car business you have to listen you have to listen to the person's needs and then you you know and he said you talk too much and I said okay you know whatever and uh, I remember like I was working for Laura and, and I was there and, and I took the call like you know in their backyard and I remember they're like well, we're not going to hire him like ugh you know and that, then that really accelerated this idea of you know trying to you know, go to that's that's when I went to nursing school. Mm-hmm. That's when I started the funeral home. So twenty twelve is when I went to like nursing school. Yeah. Thirteen is when I was working at the funeral home. That's that's when I was working there. But again, and, and also too, they have to make sure that it's part time. Like how many services did you do? If I was getting close to forty hours, they wouldn't let you do one. Mm-hmm. So if you went over forty, you could be considered full time they have to start giving you like benefits, which they made sure you never got. <laughs> So, you know, like, the most money I ever made at the funeral home was, the, my best month, I made $800. Okay, my rent was thirteen eighty at the time. So, I, it never covered my rent. So, it was like a real struggle. So, anyway, Joel, uh, I went, I didn't get the job, and then um, I didn't apply at any other car dealership. It was really weird. I, like, I, I could have, I didn't. Uh, I Then I, you know, I went to nursing school, didn't get it, started driving the hearse. And like I said, there was great things about that job. There were bad things. But in reality, I didn't make anywhere near enough money to even cover my rent. So mm-hmm. I had to do something. So now I'm getting desperate. And after the If I Could See You Could See incident, I went on. I called Joel. I'm like, Joel. I'm like, please, if there's any way they're ever hiring again. He goes, we're hiring now. He goes, if I get you an interview, you have to shut up. You have to come in here <laughs> quiet, you know? So I, I so that's t- when smoking pot could have helped you out. Yeah. See? Well, well, what? So I would be comatose during an interview. <laughs> so I, so I hate pot. I smoke pot. I smoke pot. I can count on one hand, but I hate it. You know, every time I smoke pot, I, I hallucinated wildly. <laughs> I saw crazy things. I, I, I saw the Rockettes performing in a candle. I, I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, like real, like, like, cause imagine how pure my body is. Smoking the rock kind of pot. Well, uh, well, imagine the right I'm, kind. I imagine don't know. exactly. People are like, I'd do anything to get as high as you. I'm like, it sucked. I hated it. But anyway, oh, I, I hate pot. I hate it. So anyway, uh, so so I called and he got me another interview. And this time, so now I, I, I'm like between funerals and I go up there in the flower truck for this interview and I'm like wearing a suit and everything and I go in same guy Mike Mitchell my mentor brought me into the car business really and he I just man I just shut up and he's like what have you been doing I'm like driving a hearse and he goes yeah how's that I'm like well it taught me to be really quiet I go for long stretches of my day I just stand there in complete silence and he was like hmm you know like I really played it you know this time and I go and he goes, well, how is that? I go, well, you only work when there's a death. And if no one dies, I don't work, you know. I go, sometimes I have a week off. 
And I go, now having a week off is nice if, if you earned it. And he goes, ooh, I like that. You know, because in the car business, they want you to work as much as possible. You get like one day a week off and they really, and then on that day, they would be like, you, so you have enough money? You don't need to come in? And they would like start working on your mind. They, they can't sell a car unless you're there. And, and not every dealership is like this, I came to find out. But where I worked certainly was. They wanted you there as much as humanly possible. So I... Uh, um, anyway, so I said all the right things, and he goes, all right, I'll let you know in a week. And he goes, you know what? And I'll never forget, he goes, he goes, fuck that, you're hired. And he reached huh. over, and he, he hired me. So now i got to buy clothes. So when I got hired at the funeral home, I borrowed money to buy two suits. I went to that shitty place by the Coliseum. I got two suits for $138. Two for $138. I mean, they're terrible. And, but I wore them, and, and you have to, like, scrub toilets in the suit and everything when you work at the funeral home. I mean, it's like you're... You're wearing this thing under conditions where you wouldn't normally be wearing a suit. Then you got to come out fresh for the next batch of viewer, m- mourners coming in, you know, to see that whatever. So anyway, it was just, so I so now I have to buy and I have nothing. So I remember like laying out my shirts on my bed and taking pictures with my phone and sending them to Joel. And he's like, too casual, too casual, too casual. <laughs> I'm like, damn it, you know, because all I had is like shirts that I got, you know, like stop staring, you know, that, not stop yeah. staring, but who, who is it? Like um, rock, steady. rock steady. That's all I had was like shirts where I looked like Tony Soprano or something. And apparently that wasn't right. Like fat guy Vegas Yes, shirts. exactly. Now where I work now in Marin, it's fine. In fact, they wear, that's what they wear. The GM wears that stuff. Huh. So it's really relaxed where I'm at now. And you get a couple days off a week and you can take back and, 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 and. So I'm finally at a place that appreciates my unique meanness i guess they just let me be myself and i it, it works very well and nobody's busting my balls and you know but anyway how i arrived there is, is a whole other thing but anyway i go to work so I, I finally get some clothes and i'm working i finally start you know so i get i'll never forget i go in they're like hey it's flu season i already get flu shots we can't afford to lose you know we have a skeleton crew we have like maybe four guys on the floor at that time and uh five i guess and um I go in and I go, I'm going to get a flu shot. And they're like, do you have insurance? And I go, no. And I go, wait, yes. Like it was, it was so weird to have insurance, you know, after like decades. So I, so I, I go and I get them, they go, oh, it's free. I'm like, whoa. So I text, you know, John, the owner. And I'm like, and he goes, and he said, in 30 years, you were the first person that ever thanked me for health insurance. And I'm like, and in 30 years, I'm sure I appreciate it more than anybody else does. You know, I also assumed that after 30 years, the day I got coverage, my appendix would burst. Right. You know, I assumed it was like waiting, like, oh, finally, you know, like I thought I was just going to go to hell immediately, you know, but um, if I'm thankful for anything, I'm thankful for a lot of things, but my health has been, it's just been incredible. I've never been sick. I've never been I've never uh, broken a bone. I've never had a stitch. I've never been to an emergency room. And I've never spent a minute Why in the hospital. Why are you saying all of this? <laughs> because like the minute you leave, you're gonna get yeah, into like a giant not car really. crash or something. Well, because I've been saying this for twenty plus years, and nothing. Go- it, I don't believe in jinxes. I'm just I feel saying. Like you're testing you the know universe. what? When I do, it's gonna be like finally something <laughs> happened to this guy. You know, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, I've just been. It's it's remarkable, right, to get that far along with. I mean, I mean, not one stitch. Yeah, you're due. Yeah, I'm due for I'm due for a complete breakdown. Yeah. You know, I'm due, I'm due for I'm due to be full of cancer and have two weeks left. I know it, but it's so far so good. Anywho, uh, so 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 I get so I get yeah. the job. So I'm so I'm working. I start selling cars, and uh, and and you know slowly 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 you know. But I was happy. Like every day when I got up looking at my three shirts that I could wear and smelling it and which one smells the least, you know, and trying to, you know what I mean? Trying them on my own, trying to make it, you know, and I, and I, and I, I was so thankful, you know, and, 
Anyway, it ends up being a car salesman is probably what I should have done all along. Uh, I kind of avoided it as a kid. You know, my uh, bunch of my relatives were car salesmen. My cousin Johnny Noretto has a famous Buick dealership in Western Pennsylvania. Uh, John Noretto Buick and my cousin Larry worked at Hamilton Buick Pontiac. And then, geez, my uncle Joe sold RVs for a while. I mean, I have all this family in car sales and I could have gone into it. I mean, I could have. At age 18, like when I graduated at 17, I could have become a car salesman then. I can't imagine where I would be or what I, I would surely own a home. And, you know, if I started paying a mortgage 30 some years, I mean, who knows? Who knows? I would have whatever, whatever. I would, But I would have never come to California, never done Gearhead. I would have never met, you name it, Tim Yohannan, Robert Williams, whoever, whoever, whoever. Uh, so, you know, like that, that was, you know, that, that, that's just the way I went. But... The car sales thing suits me. It does. Uh, I think a lot of people in sales uh, despise the human race. And there's just a very thin <laughs> layer of uh, civility between you and their com- complete contempt for mankind. I actually love people, as you both know. I really like people. I can get along with just about anybody. When somebody comes in who's like, and they're like an angry you know, person, Mike, Mike, uh, my, ex- my old uh, boss, my old manager said, um, uh, you represent every bad experience a person ever had buying a car sure. when they walk in. So, you know, a lot of times the first 10 minutes is just diffusing the person. They're angry when they come in. They're mad about a, a 74 Pontiac that they had that had a leaky roof. You know, they're mad at you, you know, and you have to, like, overcome that, you know. And I so usually with a, a combination of, I hope, product knowledge and expertise slash humor and, and well, what Mike said, the best compliment I ever got was he said, you know, I can teach you how to sell cars, but I can't teach personality. And he said, and you have the best personality I've ever seen. So that that's a hell of a thing to say. Yeah. And, and I and, and, and he really did. And he he spent time with me like he really sat down like this is how a lease works. This because I, I never owned a car in my life. I mean, I owned I owned cars that were 30 years old or whatever, you know. And, uh, you know, save up for years to buy a $2,000 whatever, yeah. you know, or, or, or what have you. But I, I, uh, I, and I only really owned a handful of cars. I had my 68 Dodge Charger. I paid two grand for it. I got 13000 for it. Yeah. I put nothing in it. I had to sell it. I made, I made 11 grand and for nothing. It's just they appreciated. I mean, if I could go back in time to the 90s, I'd buy up muscle cars and Nirvana records. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, if I went back to the 80s, I'd buy up you know punk records of misfits records specifically whatever so um but anyway so you know it suits me and i'm doing that now and uh so i'm not legally allowed to be gearhead mm-hmm. uh if people contact me if i still have some stuff i may or may not uh you know <laughs> but but uh uh i still i I'm, I'm you know of course i'm really proud of it i'm i am looking for the next thing i had to cool out uh, after i left the label i didn't go to a show for like some years there was about a three-year period where I only went to, I, I think, four shows. One of them was Bortzman Nortz. My cousin Jamin was playing in this weird <laughs> new wave band. He was playing a Thurman, you know. And I went to see them, and then I went to see Roger Merritt because I was interviewing him. But that was it. I mean, I can count on one hand how many shows I saw in, like, a four-year period. But, but it got so weird. You know, when you have a label and you have success, people, you know, I got laid. I mean, I got laid. Like, I had sex with someone who was trying to, get on the label i mean like it was that it's like i will have sex with you right now like okay you know like uh, yes you will you know or whatever i mean it was like it was weird like you wouldn't believe the stuff that gets thrown at you and, and especially like 
you know, my association with the hives and everything, they became very successful. They were very good friends of mine. I guess we're still friends. If we talked, if I ran into them, every subsequent time I've seen them, it was very friendly, but I don't really pursue that. But anyway, it got to be this weird thing where like, um, Hey Mike, my you know my cousin is getting really good on the clarinet. Can you get him in the hives? You know, like or whatever, just weird shit. And then people, people wanted shit. From yeah, you. constantly they wanted stuff. And then you know, people were like, "Oh, here my dad," and I'm like, "Ah, I can't." You know, I don't know that. You know, and people. Were, and then you could see disappointment on people's face, and especially when I got out of the business, they're like, "Oh, like." You know, I thought this was it. You were going to, you know, you were going to be, me knowing you was going to be my ticket to whatever. And it's like, I'm no one's ticket to anything. Believe me, you know, someone's ticket to fucking Nuthouse. It's probably about it. Whoever I was going out with at the time, I never, you know, so it was really weird. Like, I think people think that I had a more influence than I actually had. I mean, I've been lucky. You know, people like me for whatever reason and wanted to work with me. I mentioned the artists that work that did covers for Gearhead, and not just covers, everything, mm-hmm. the record sleeves, and then you know photographers, talented writers, you know like David Featherston, people like that, like writing and not, you know, don't worry about paying me, like that's unheard of in the when you're making a living as an automotive journalist. But uh, it had the, the Gearhead had so much goodwill at one time, and everybody just all the most talented, seriously, photographers, writers, artists, they wanted to contribute, they wanted to be a part of it. I remember when I finally interviewed Cole, he was like, you know, don't you remember when I got introduced to you and I really wanted to be in Gearhead and you didn't, and he was kind of like, and I'm like, well, we'll make up for it. And we did, you know, and he was on the cover and then we wrote it, you know, we did the book, uh, the, the Salinas Boys book, you know, and it was great. So, you know, I made up for it, but, but he actually was like, oh, I really wanted to be in here. You know, it was wow. so cool. And I'm like, wow. So, you know, so anyway, that all that goodwill and everything. So I'm very thankful for that. The other thing I'm thankful for besides my health is that, I I never let not making money stop me from doing anything. Mm-hmm. And Gearhead took me all around the world. It really did. You know, I got flown to Sweden to be best man in a guy's wedding, you know, Yokia from the Nomads to to be, you know, because like the Gearhead guy is going to be my best man. Like that that it had like that much cachet at one time that it actually took me and then they did Gearfest and then we Two years later, we added Finland. Then two years after that, we added Norway. And then I did one in Austin at Emos. And, the, you know, I was I was doing, like, a rock festival in four countries at one point. I mean, it's crazy. And all this just, it's just me parlaying that whatever meanness there was. There was no payoff for anybody. There wasn't any, it's just like, let's create this thing. We'll do this thing. It'll be really cool. And the, what I negotiated on Gearfest was to, to make... The salary of one of the bands so whatever was there if there were 10 bands say there were 10 bands and they made ten thousand dollars and everybody got a thousand bucks like that i negotiated like just pay me like i'm a band and i'll i'll put it together and and so that i think that was uh you know they, they certainly were happy with that or whatever and you know and i, I once went to europe with eleven dollars i had eleven dollars but i had a duffel bag full of gearhead shirts and i came back with eleven hundred I remember that specifically. I remember counting it when I got home. So it's, you know, like, I, I, I could trust that, you know, if I go there, I'll sell, everybody will want this stuff, they'll buy it, I'll come back with it. And it, it is interesting. So it, I, I didn't let, it took me all around the world, and I didn't let not having money stop me. That's, that's like the biggest thing. People always wait their whole lives till they have enough money to do something. And I would, why, you know? And, uh, you know, um, People pay into retirement and they, you know, I'm going to retire and then it's going to be, well, but isn't it better to live hard when you're at your youngest? 
Right. Isn't it better to from eighteen to forty to fifty? Like I did everything I wanted in those years, and it and and you know, from playing in bands to touring to being a tour manager to putting out records, whatever I did, I did whatever I wanted for thirty years. And people always say, "Well, you had a good run," you know. And what am I doing now? It's not horrible. I just have a job. I don't feel like a schmuck. I don't feel like some jerk getting up and going to work. I like it. I go in. People come in. You talk to them. You help people get a car. Sometimes it's a young couple who are, they're having a baby, so they want to get a, a they need a new safe car, or it's an older person that they're driving some twenty year old piece of shit, and they didn't think they were going to live this long, but if they're still alive, they need a car. I, I know how to handle everybody. You know, if they're young, it's a, uh, you know, it's all optimism, and you know, you talk about safety. If they're old, you, you know, tell a funny couple funny funeral home stories. <laughs> and, you know, roll with that or. You know, whatever. That's like the weirdest thing I always hear. Like, I this is gonna be my last car, so it's gotta be really. I need a good deal. I'm like, and I and I, and I will say, I would immediately say, like, actually, if it's your last car, you don't need any deal at all. Who cares? It's your last car. You already have a foot in the grave. And then they laugh. I mean, I'll, I'll say, like, it took me years in the business to not filter my personality at all. You know, but it's really working to my advantage now. I just, I'm just me. And a lot of times people will come in, they'll be like, man, I'm glad I got you. I'm glad I specifically got you. So you just make this connection. And it's, and you have to, if someone's spending $30,000, I mean, it wasn't too long ago that that would buy you like a pretty nice house yeah. or, or, you know, or, or would be a hell of a down payment on a really good house or whatever it is. And they're spending 30 grand and they, they need to trust you, you know? So I'm glad that, you know, it, it suits me. Also, it's a job I can do for the rest of my life. All I have to do is, stand up when the person walks in and then walk over a car and show it like yeah. you know like I, yeah like i'm on uh, price is right or something and you walk around and you do a test drive then they sit down then they buy then you deliver it you go over the books you show them you pair their phone you show them how to work their car and then i can't tell you how many people have said to me like can i hug you and i'll go as far as i know there's no law in the books in the state of california about hugging a salesman you know and, and they'll hug them or they'll be like i'm you know and, you know, a couple of women have laid kisses on me, you know, like legitimate, like, kisses. You know, like, they're just really like, Mwah. you know, I'm so happy I, I bought a car from you. And that's great. I mean, so it's, it's, it's super rewarding. And I, you know, and I certainly make enough now. Could I work harder and make more? Absolutely. But I, I won't, I won't, I won't do anything that's, they call that getting kinky in the car business. Like, or they call you a kink. Like, you'll do something or... I mean, there were times you could take advantage of an older person or you could, you know, and I won't do it. I just won't do it. Like everything I do, I bring the same integrity to car sales as I brought to punk rock, to gearhead, to everything I do. And it's probably in some ways detrimental monetarily, but I don't care. That's how it is. Like, you know, like, you know, like the angel and devil on your shoulder. I always have Ian MacKay in one <laughs> ear and Tim Yohannan in the other. Like, you know, so I mean, like whatever, whatever I'm doing, it's that's always going to temper I, I don't know. I mean, you, 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 you get up, you go to work, it feels good. Some days you sell a car, some days you don't. But I never feel like I'm wasting my time, you know. Yeah. And then when I come home, I'm not tired, I'm not beat. I didn't, you know, like, you know, in Pittsburgh, I, I painted houses, I hung drywall, I, I put shakes on houses, I was up on scaffolding. I, you know, when I worked in restaurants, I, you know, emptied grease fryers and <laughs> y y whatever, you know, like just, I've had those jobs where, you know, you really, you know, so... 
I, I'm in something that I think I can do. The other thing I thought I would be good at maybe was becoming like a, 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 um, a psychiatrist. <laughs> you know, like I thought that would be good, but I guess I talk too much. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. Say, I don't know. You wouldn't shut the well, fuck up. Well, not, not so much a psychiatrist as a, a psychologist, like a, yeah. just someone who, you know, like a someone who talks to troubled youth or whatever. Kids come in and like, <laughs> my parents don't understand me. I'm punk. And well, I can tell you all about not being understood. You know, or whatever, you know, and, and trying to help people. I wanted to do that. I wanted to, like, big brother, mentor kids or whatever. I, 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 I had this romantic idea that I would be good at that. And, and that also requires sitting down, which I like, which I'm very fond of. Like, not having to do anything too manual. But so does car sales. So, like, at least I'm in something. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, I do want to do something again. Like, I, I, circling back to that, I wanted to get the bad taste of that out of my mouth where everybody wanted to... Do you think you would a, do another magazine? No. God, no. Why? You know? Oh, God. You, you know? don't got to tell me. Well, that medium's dead. But when you... It's, it's, not only is it dead, but I did a really good magazine. Mm-hmm. You know? I don't feel like, gee, if I only, you know, would have... You know, whatever. It's I, not I don't, completely dead. I, I don't have the magazines. I mean, maybe it'll come. Well, there's retro everything. Look how records came roaring back. Yeah. Final records came roaring back. I, I, I'm, I've been more tempted to start putting out records again than I have been publishing a magazine. Start a little label, you know, maybe or something like that. But what I really want to do is a podcast, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And you offered to help me and my friend Spar offered to help me. And I, I just I don't I, I now I have more time. Uh, yeah. When I was working in Albany, I mean, my one day, maybe a week off, didn't cut it. And, and we worked longer hours, and I was there much later. I started earlier. I worked later. I worked 63 hours a week on the clock, mm-hmm. and plus. And it, 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 I really didn't feel like when you first approached me, I, I didn't think. Now, I certainly have more time, yeah. and, I, and I, I, I could do it. And I, I would love to. I mean, I really, when I think about who I could get, it's kind of remarkable. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's no one in the punk scene that, you know, I, you know, I know kind of everybody and, 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 you know, I would love to sit down and talk to Bob Mould and, you know, everybody that, you know, and Glenn Danzig and everybody. I mean, I, I know they'll take my phone calls. I have their numbers. I have Billy Gibbons number. Yeah. I could call whoever. I mean, and, and, and then, and then the car guys too. That's the other thing. And, you know, the car, the car thing, I mean, you're covering it. You're doing a great job. It's really, everybody that you've talked to is, I think, particularly creative and, and it's great that you're doing it. And, uh, I definitely want to. Uh, you know, link your thing to. I'll, I'll start working because your social media is uh, iffy at best. Oh yeah. And so no, I want to. And so I mean, I have uh, like two thousand friends who are just waiting for me to do something on Facebook. So I'll, I'll make sure that everyone knows about this. Hopefully, they'll check out the other nine podcasts. Sure. And 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 if I can, obviously if I can help you in any way, I will. Yeah, and likewise, like I, if I figured out the mechanics of getting a podcast together, so if you yeah. want help. Getting something off the ground. I'd well, it famously took me two years to figure out how to put out Gearhead One because I yeah. couldn't figure out how to publish a magazine. I just just the layout, everything about it, the layout, the print, the then, the then, the then. How do you do it? How do you, you know? And I did it. You need to recenter yourself. <laughs> what does you that mean? To, you, he had questions he wanted to ask oh, you. Oh, go ahead. Anyway, that's I was trying to I was trying to give you a nice hour longish encapsulation, which I think I did. It's, it's great. Yeah. No, I so this is basically what I wanted to, to talk about. So. Well, I, <laughs> I've been interviewed before where they asked the first question and no other question. Yeah. So. But I know all of these things. Yeah. What do you want to know? Go ahead. Hit me up. One thing that was on my mind. Open is, book. Yeah. Since Gear had started in the early 90s and continued through the, the mid-2000s, car culture changed so much oh, during that. yes. Like, it went from being 
like our little corner of this thing, like yes. apologetically led into shows at the beginning. Yes, and then going on a huge, huge like bulletproof even is sure turned into such a well, huge thing. Well, yeah, and I went to the first eighteen bulletproofs. I watched the whole thing happen. But you missed this year. I missed last year too on purpose. I just decided to stop. You know, I made I made the decision to not go. Actually, it was hard, but I did it. I, I wanted to. I just wanted to. I don't know. I want. I again. I in the same way. I was distanced. I just. I just wanted to. I, I don't know. I, I didn't want to be. I don't want to be anywhere where everyone thinks I'm going to be. It's, you needed it, a it, siesta. It, it's kind of yeah. It's kind of a weird thing. But anyway, uh, apologies to whoever misses me. Missed me there. But the the, the whole thing is uh, uh, when we started. I remember going to Sears Point, and I had gearhead number ones, and I handed them to people, and they handed them back to me. Yeah. They were like, yeah, like, you know, because like, <laughs> it was like black and white and weird, and what is this? Meanwhile, it looked like car craft from 63, yeah. which is, what's rather than that? I mean, design probably peaked in the, if not the late 50s, certainly the early 60s, and, you know, like, yeah. all that all that stuff is so cool. That was my mission statement. My mission statement with gearhead was to reintroduce all that stuff back into our culture. Yeah. And that, and I took it upon myself to do that. And like I said, you know, I noticed Ratfink stickers here and this and this. And I thought, you know, these bands are into this stuff. There's an audience for this. If I can take my love for cars and rock and roll and art and all the related culture and make a magazine. And no one did that. I mean, it just no one did. And yeah. yeah. And this was before Juxtapose, before. Yeah. Oh, it predates all that. Speed Kills was out. I interviewed Gassuffer before he did on the same tour. We kind of were around the same time, and I wrote for him, and he wrote for me. But he stopped after seven issues, and uh, I, you know, I kept going for, you know, that many more years or whatever. But uh, I mean, there were detours too. I worked for Frank Kozik. I worked at Man's Room and Records. I worked at a record label, and I, I, mean, I got Caius to his label and, and all that. And I, you know, I did a lot of. I set a lot of people up with a lot of people. I mean, there was a lot of like. Brett Garewitz called me. Who's your favorite band? Gasshuffer. Then he signed him. I mean, that was me, you know, and, 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 and them being great. I mean, not to take away from them, of course, but, you know, I'm just saying, like, he, I, I put the name Gas Huffer into his head. I'm like, they are the best band right now or whatever it is. And, I, man, I've, I've, you know, I've helped, I've helped people so many, you know, just making connections. Like, you should know this guy. Then things would happen and this and that. But, but, vis -a -vis, but back to your question, it was ridiculous. We went to this, uh, in 1991, or whatever it was, 90, we, we went to, uh, um, it was a Rod Powell flame picnic, mm -hmm. and it was down in, uh, it wasn't in Salinas, but it was down there somewhere, and that's where I met Cole, and, and I think about that now, we were 25, and he showed up with, uh, uh, they, they had those you know, suede you know, cars and primer, mm -hmm. and it was like, everyone's like, what the? And I was like, when are you going to paint those? What's going on here? Where, you know, so it was like we were the super weirdos, you know. And I met him then, and I was just like, wow, you know. And then, and then like, and then you would go to like Paso, and they would be playing like, they weren't even playing like the Beach Boys. They were playing like Theme from a Summer Place, you know, like. I'm like, it was like walking into like, you know, somebody's, it was like a dream sequence of what was supposed to be happening. And there's like that gazebo, and they're playing like this lovely music and everyone has these you know and then when we showed up it must have looked like the gates of hell opened up you know when the, 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 you know these they came in with the rust and the primer and the you know and i watched the whole thing happen i mean i and documented you know i was the first person ever to cover bulletproof and all that you know and and subsequent other shows and i was very into the uh Asphalt Invitational, the Primer National, all those little shows. I loved them, loved them, loved them. And I supported them as hard as I could and donated stuff. And I just, I loved the whole culture. And I watched the whole thing happen. 
And I remember one time it was at a poor boy's show, and they were on their, I don't know, fifth or sixth venue that they'd been kicked out of, you know. And we were somewhere at some hotel or something, and I don't know where the hell. We're somewhere in Sacramento, and we're there. And, and I remember I'm standing there, and I have a beer. Somebody gave me a luke, lukewarm Pabst or whatever, and I'm standing there, and they're, and the, and they're playing the U.K. subs. Over the loudspeaker, <laughs> over the entire ground, and everyone there is walking around. They all look like they just saw social distortion last night or whatever. You know, everybody's got the guys have pompadours, the girls are wearing, you know, dolled up. Everyone looks cool. Even the older people are like, they kind of got the clue a little. All that when I started, it was all neon. Remember the neon era? <laughs> like the shirts had like neon in them, like drag races with like pink and powder blue and like green neon. It was so bad. There was no like style. Was it? An absolute low point, you know, and that's why I think Kirk Jones got hired to work at the Good Guys. They were like, make this yeah. relevant. And when he had been laying out, he was one of the many, many people who laid out Gearhead. He laid out Gearhead nine. He and uh, Todd Westover, who at the time was a Drag Racing Monthly, and we did it in a weekend. Drove to LA and we laid out that whole issue in two days. Uh-huh. It's pretty remarkable. But Kirk Jones is a Kirk Jones is a huge talent. He's just like this remarkably talented person, and I just really. I've always really liked him, and you know we just got along really well. And 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 um, you know it, he and Jay Ward started Bulletproof, and I love the idea. I'm like a car show that starts at noon, perfect, because it was all that lining up at six. And of course, I'm sure it eventually became that. Yeah. You know, but but Midnight Mass was like that too. Right. Like, Midnight Mass was so punk rock; it was preposterous. Yeah. And you know, poor Daryl, you know, like no burnouts, like and everybody burning. And so they lose the venue and they burn. But I'll I'll never forget like. Was, what do you call it, like a catharsis, like a moment? And I'm standing there, and it's like, and it's like the UK subs are playing. like, And, and it was that guy, Richie, they hired a DJ, I remember. Yeah. And, I'm, and I'm standing there, and I'm just like, you know, and, and really, this would have been like, what, 2000, I don't know. It was maybe like the third or fourth midnight mass. And so it wasn't that far into it. What are they up to now? I don't know. I don't know. Okay, so they, well, anyway, the point is, like, it wasn't that long. Yeah. Maybe it, like 2004. Yeah, probably. So like, really, it's only 12 years, maybe. Because we went to the first one together. Mm-hmm. I want to say 12 years. I, I it, it would be clever to say it happened in a decade and 10. It was probably more like 12 or 13 or 14 years, but it became like totally punk rock. And I remember thinking like, I remember going to car shows and like they would be playing like, you know, the Beach Boys or Chuck Berry or whatever. And I'm like, that's fine, but... You could play the Stooges in the MC5. Why couldn't you? We're looking at muscle cars from Detroit from the late 60s. Play. Why couldn't you play? You know. And then I remember like one time going to SEMA and there was like Mopar Alley and there was like this, it connected to the buildings and you walk through and they, they you know, my friend John Clark, uh, he, he uh, invited people with muscle cars out and they were. And it, it was his iPod and they were playing the Stooges. Awesome. And I was like, okay, finally, we're, we're at SEMA and they're playing the Stooges, and we're looking at muscle cars. Like, it happened. Like, my vision, my idea happened. I actually was there, to, and I'm like, and of course, I was like, who's iPod? And he's like, mine. I'm like, well, of course it is. You know, like, of course I know the guy responsible for playing the music, and he's playing, like, the Dirt Bombs. I'm like, this is perfect. This is perfect. Like, finally, finally. So I feel vindicated. Like, whatever I set out to do, to, you know, just try to save that culture and what was good about it. And the, you know, the, the garage is the whole thing. It's like the garage band, the garage built, you know, like, and that's, that's the thing, like preserve that culture. I mean, it's been said that in the sixties, 
you know, every every on every block you could hear a band playing in somebody's garage, yeah. and they pushed the whatever car they were working out out to play. You know, it's like that whole. You know, I I, I used to think about that all the time, like. Um, you know, like Paul Revere and the Raiders played at a drag strip, you know, to promote like a GTO. Like it blows my mind. Like the stuff that happened in the 60s that people, I despise the montage of the 60s where it's like guys running through the jungle in Vietnam and they're playing, you know, the tired, you know, like Jefferson Airplane or whatever, you know, like the most <laughs> cliched, you know, or like they, they show the dead and like people twirling around the circle and falling down in Golden Gate Park or something. The, the 60s was 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 playboy clubs and all it was that's why mad men was i, I loved it because i'm like at least they're showing like the other you know all these other things in the culture but but it was like there was all this cool stuff going on and i was like you know no one's going to preserve this and the and the the you know i love how people started fetishizing the like the the, the you know the the actual um survivor cars and they're like you know this was built this was in hot rod in 1950 it was my uncle's. Here it is. Like, yes. You know, like, because, you know, that Brizio era, no offense to them, but, you know, it was, you know, they messed up a lot of perfectly good cars, turning them into, you know what I mean? Or, and then they reproed everything, and then you have the not real, you know, roadsters and all that. I mean, you have, you have, so, you know, like this, this idea, you know, Robert Williams, you know, famously, you know, it's in primer, I'm done, you know, and then, and then all the choppers and those, that, those guys, and they were like, yes. And so it was happening in a couple of different places, but I was there to see it all, document it all. And in the end, yeah, you're right. It's like this huge thing. Uh, I think, I think the principal people all know who I am. You know, I, I, I think that I'm, I, I don't, I'm not like a, you know, it's not like I got no accolades ever or anything. I, I certainly don't feel that way. I feel, I feel blessed if anything that I've been able to spend time with. I mean, we, you know, I was just thinking about, uh, you know, Barris was, it's been a year now and, you know, we lost Bill Hines and, you know, and, and all, and I'm so glad I got to interview these people, talk to these people, you know, like I was there for that. And, 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 you know, they're, they're really, you know, they're like the most heroic post-World War II people, you know, that came out of it and, yeah. and did all these things. And, and then, you know, lakes bed racing and just all that stuff. And, and I, and I'm so glad I came to California. I could never afford to live here and I really still can't. You know, if I sold cars, I'd make the same money anywhere. If I was in Iowa, I could have some rad mansion or something, I'm sure, probably. You know, but I, I but then I'd be in Iowa. You know, so I basically sacrificed whatever so I could stay here to be here, to be where the culture is. And yes, I watched it grow. And yes, if I had anything to do with it, I'm proud of it. I'm proud of whatever contributions I made to that culture. You know, I'm very proud of it. But it's it seems fine now. You know, it's, I don't know, you know, I mean, there, you know, I don't know, is there, I mean, people always complain to me about old school rods and all that, and it's, you know, it's, it doesn't have content, you know, but I mean, I knew eventually somebody who had money, who had like an advertising budget and a staff would come along and right. put music and cars and some art into a magazine. It's a, it's a good idea. Uh, I, 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 I hope it's not the only good idea I ever have in my life. Uh, but, but, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, it's still, it, it, you know, it, it, it goes on its own. It, it goes on and on and on, and it will go on and on and on. And like I say, if I had anything to do with it, great. But yeah, I did watch it. I watched it go from fetus to, you know, getting signed to the NBA or whatever. You know, like whatever's the proudest moment of a kid's, a parent's uh, life. You know, okay. I'm good. Yeah, keep talking. I'll answer anything. Sure. I mean, We're at like an hour forty. I'm gonna hit pause on it just to make sure it saves it. And uh, yeah, is that it to turn it on? That's it. One button. Wow. Could be easier. Hey, so we had a break in the recording here, and I thought it would be a cool opportunity to play some of the music we've been talking about in the interview. 
This song is by Real Enemy, which was Mike's first band in Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh's first hardcore band. Uh, it's off their tape. They recorded in 1983 on Mike Records, which, as we talked about in the interview, has actually been repressed on vinyl by the current owner of Mind Cure Records. So if you like it, it's out there. And uh, I think it's a great album. It's some great early hardcore. So here's 30 seconds of it. Uh, Stay Aware off Life with the Enemy from 1983. Mike's first band, Real Enemy. Okay, so you asked me what? Well, that was not natural. Well, the microphone... How did we get there? The microphone was off for a brief period of time, during which time you asked me, what did I want to be when I was a little kid? <laughs> Is that what you said? Yeah. I think that's how you phrased yes, it. Yes, yeah. Because you were talking about, I don't know, being a little kid. Well, yeah, no. And, well, I, well I, I remember this very distinctly. I wanted to be a lollipop maker. <laughs> and I just decided that... And, and I remember everyone was like, really not supportive of that idea that's so mean yeah like my well i grew well i grew up in a house filled with adults i mean i'm i'm you know i'm a bastard you know my mom had uh she had me totally out of wedlock she had had my sister two years earlier and they sent her to catholic charities with the nuns like in the john waters movie where nuns are we're going on a hayride at midnight and it's raining and, and all this you know and then you they take the baby from you you know get this it's really traumatic anyway it ended up being my sister carol when I turned 30, she came looking for us, and then I went to meet her. So I met my sister when I turned 30, wow. and then I met another sister when I turned 50. <laughs> so, so yeah, my not my father now. My uh, so my my mom my mom and my uh, dad my uh, actual paternal my father biological. biological father he and my mother never dated. It was the one night they met in a bar, and that's it. And so like she never went out with the guy. Nothing, you know. So she, she knew precious little about him. I never, I grew up, until I was 50, I only knew half of my nationality. So my mom is, my mom is half Croatian and half Italian. So I knew I was a quarter Crow, quarter Italian. My last name, Lovella, is my mother's maiden name. She was never married until 1975. She married Bob Anderson, who was a trucker, who used to take me with him in the truck, which is why I saw 40 states by the time I was 10 years old. Okay, so... Uh, which was, which was, and, and I was, and I was going around in the truck at the height of trucking, you know, it was the mid seventies. It was moving on, smoking the bandit, BJ and the bear. And I was in a truck, you know, talking on a CB. So, you know, I was like, I was living it. But, uh, but, but previous to that, it was just me and my mom, you know, and, uh, she, uh, 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 I was raised in a house of adults. So I, when I grew up, it was my mom and her identical twin, my aunt Janet, my aunt Tootsie and my grandfather, Tony Lavella. And we lived together, and, and they, my mom said the biggest mistake she ever made was, she goes, when you would talk, we would all shut up. We would just listen to you talk. And, like, so I thought I was, like, a little man, you know. I, I was I was very precocious. Like, you know, I... I you were I, the center of the... Yeah. Well, it was a novelty. They are all living there, and all of a sudden there's this little kid. They were probably and, all a little drunk, too. Well, maybe. My grandfather made wine, you know. He did. He had a, a cellar in the house he owned next door, and he converted into, you know, he made wine. They go red, you know. <laughs> But uh, I don't know if they were drunk, but they were, they were bored probably more than anything, you know, in harmony. But 
uh, you know, it was, it was really interesting because, you know, my Aunt Janet loved the Beatles and the Beach Boys, and my Aunt Tootsie was Motown, you know, and she was Stax Records. I mean, she gave me a record that's all Stax, Volt, Filet of Soul, like this great soul record. You know, those Northern Soul kids would kill, you know, just to get a hold of these records that, were, that I just inherited, you know. But I grew up with that. Then my cousin Mary Frances, my Aunt Liz, lived across the street. And my cousin Mary is 10 years older than me. And she was like a teeny bopper. She liked the monkeys. And then my grandfather listened to the Mills Brothers and Louis Prima, but jazz. And my Uncle Bobby listened to like jazz jazz, real jazz, and introduced me to Sonny Clark and all that kind of, and cool stuff, you know. Um, uh, you, you know, Jimmy Smith, like organ record, you know, just cool. Like, I, so I was bombarded with, like, and, and, because we're Croatian, polkas on weekends. We listen to polkas and waltzes. And by the time I was three, I could tell you the difference between a Polish polka, a Croatian polka, you know, or Slovenian, actually. They're not Croatian. They're technically Slovenian. And I could tell the difference and, and all that. And, and, and so I grew up with all this music and everything. And, and, and I was introduced into that, which was great. But again, when I talked, they would apparently listen to me. And apparently my opinions had some weight or validity. And, and uh, you know... Uh, but but I, I, I had this idea to be a lollipop maker. I don't know why. And I was like, and I'm going to give them to the kids. And I, I, I think I just wanted a lollipop so goddamn bad <laughs> that I thought when I get older, I'm going to make lollipops. But, you know, to, they their, will never run out. to their credit, they were like, and how are you going to sell them? How are you going to market them? How are you going to, if you give them away, you won't make money. How are you going to make a living? How? And I was like, mm. you know, like, so, and then I decided I want to be an artist. And then that was, then I was always drawing and everything. And, uh, you know, and so I, I wanted to be an artist, and, and I was very mediocre. Uh, I went to the Art Institute of Pittsburgh, who will take, if you have a pulse, they'll take you. You know, and I went to, we used to call it 13th grade, or, or high school with ashtrays. It was, it was like the worst, you know. And I went there, and, I, and you know, I got there. I went, I went for a semester, and then I moved to Pittsburgh. The first semester in 1982, I graduated in 82, and then I went, I, was, I commuted in with my friend Matt Gaffney. He drove... In we he had a, he had a pinto, and we went every day. And he, he he had like two tapes. He had like Crass and the Rosillos. It was like one or the other, and we would you know we we're like super punk rock and we're going to art school and you know. Um, was this post Real Enemy? Pre pre eighty two, so in eighty three I moved to Pittsburgh and I moved to hell. I moved to in with these two guys who like ate all my food and ran out my phone bill and and I moved into Hell House and then Real Enemy started in March of eighty three. And then, and that's, that's, that's when I, you know, so I started playing, like, as soon as I got to Pittsburgh, within three months, I was in a band and, and further a hardcore punk band, which had never existed in Pittsburgh before. But anyway, I was going to art school and, and then I was missing class cause would go, would go to play at CBGB's, would go to play at the pop shop in Cleveland. We would leave a day early. I'd miss class and I got behind, you know? So I went to vocational technical school from 10th, 11th, 12th grade. I went for a commercial art and I went half a day to Central Westmoreland Area Vocational Technical School. And what was good about that is there's only a couple of kids from my school going. It was me and David Yurkovich, Kim Somerville, and that we were the three from York. And then all the other schools, Hemfield, Norwin, Penn Trafford, they all sent their kids. And some of those kids were like kind of arty and new wavy. And it was good for me because my school was hillbilly. I mean, my, my, my class, my graduating class, in nineteen, in senior year in eighty one, the outlaws came. There was two hundred and sixty nine kids in my graduating class, and they had a tour. The outlaws had this tour called Ghost Riders in the Sky or Grits, 
G-R-I-T-S. They all do shirts like Grits, Outlaws. And I remember counting the day after the concert, 150 kids of my graduating class were wearing Outlaws t-shirts. So more than half of my graduating class went to see the Outlaws. Now I was going to see Frank Zappa and Devo uh, and the Pretenders. And, you know, I, shit, man, there was a target on my back. And I did. I got beat up. Like real bad. I got I got beat up so bad that I got expelled from school because I was walking down the hall bloody, and they were like, and they were like, who who'd you fight? And I'm like, I ain't telling you, you know. And so they kicked me out because I didn't give it up. But then I went and I told the guy like I got kicked out for three days, but I didn't give you up, and we shook hands, and then I kind of got the respect because I didn't rat the guy out, you know. It was like that code, you know, the 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 the, the high school street code, whatever the hell the code, you know. So, but anyway, yeah, I got beat up. A kid, they found out that I saw Devo, and they put snuff out of my hair. They just took a big Copenhagen and she did, and just put it in my hair. And the kid who did it was in 10th grade, and I was a senior. I'm like, yeah, I can't let this go, you know? So I took a swing at him. He came up a flight of stairs. I punched him, and I knocked him down a flight of stairs. He rolled down a flight of stairs, and he was laying there for a minute. He looked like a swastika. He was laid out. I thought everything was broken. I'm like, he's dead. Kid gets up. Goes, you got to, and he runs up the stairs and beats the hell out of me. I think part of the reason I got my ass kicked was I was shocked that he wasn't dead. You know, but this is how tough the kids were. Where I grew up, they're all farm kids. You know, I often think about World War Two. I often think about like, you know, you know the Allies invade and you know England and they're starving them out and the you know they're having the air raids and all that. When we showed up, and by we I mean Americans and 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 many a Lavella, many a Lavella, Uncle Louis, Uncle Duke. Uncle Bump, they all went. They all fought in the war. Uh, everybody but my grandfather, he didn't go because he had four children already. And that's the only reason he didn't go to World War II. But my uncles all went, and they all had these stories about how, you know, by the time they hit the beach, guys didn't want to fight. They went to Italy. Guys were like, Paisan. And then they would, like, they would meet in the middle of the battlefield and show each other pictures of their children, like Quanti, Philly, you know, like I, my kids, I don't want to fight you. I mean, they were done. They were done, especially in Italy. But I always think about it. When, I'm just thinking, about when the Americans got off the planes, we must have looked like sides of beef. You know, there's these guys from Nebraska. Think about it. You're working on a farm your whole life. You're eating good. You know, you're out in the sun. You know, the British are pale and pasty with bad teeth. And here we come, like, you know, no wonder, you know. No wonder that intimidated the Nazis and everybody. You know, they, they, we must have looked like, you know what I mean? Like, the, just the average man in the 40s was fit and athletic. And, you know, they, they bowled or they played for their the Elks Lodge uh, baseball team. In the back of the comic books. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Charles Atlas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, like, so I often think about that. But, anyway, that, that's kind of the environment I grew up in. Those kids were big and dumb. And scary kids drove tractors to school you know i mean like and really they you want to talk about like the ffa future farmers of america the 4-h club i mean it was just like i come from such a rural agricultural now 35 minutes away is pittsburgh pa 35 minutes away is heinz hall and carnegie mellon university and museums and culture but where we're at we may as well have been in you know and so how do you find punk out in oh that's a, interesting <laughs> i did i well i found here's how i found punk i found punk through frank zappa yeah that's how i came to punk my frank zappa was big enough like he was on saturday night live and mm-hmm. he was on mike douglas actually he was he was there he was around my cousin jimmy ally looked exactly like frank zappa it was crazy and he played it up really hard he had the mustache with the goatee <laughs> kept his hair like frank everything he looked he was a fucking dead ringer for frank zappa it was crazy 
and he was older. Now, he was like my mother's age, or maybe even a little older than my mom, but he uh, he coached uh, kids. He had a baseball team, the Glassport Frogs by name, and he was like, and we would go, and so we went to this one uh, wedding, and me and my cousin Beto, uh, my Uncle Bobby's son, who I grew up with, he's like a brother to me, still is, we, we went to uh, uh, this wedding, and we ran into my cousin Jimmy, and he was like, we're like, wow, who's this guy? He's crazy, you know, and, and we went out to and his car, and he had his Cadillac, and it was crazy. He had like this, uh, you know, and he would he would drive these kids, and he was like, hey, we go to Penguins games. We go to, and, and we, we would start, and because he was our older cousin, our parents let us go to his house. And what they didn't know was we could drink all the beer we want. I mean, it was like, he, he was the worst possible influence on us, but, but, but he was a, he was a good guy, but he was just, he didn't give a shit what kids did. He was, and, and further, he, had, he was the, he was a, the coach of the baseball team and all these kids would come in his house and drink and who knows whatever was going on there, you know, but you know, he showed us porno movies with like the bad, with the guys with like the sock holders. He had like those shitty eight millimeter loops. He showed us porno, but anyway, but in his record collection, he had, Zappa records and we started listening to Zappa and he had eight tracks and we would drive around his Cadillac and we would listen to Frank Zappa and I really got into Frank Zappa so I called National Record Mart in in uh, Greensburg Pennsylvania to see if they have Frank Zappa records and the guy who answered goes you should talk to Jason he's the Zappa guy Jason Pettigrew now senior editor of Alternative Press okay huh. just by luck and how old were you when all this is happening 15 so just by luck Jason is, he's like 17, and he, he's working. He's the manager of National Record Mart. And I go, hey, do you have, I go, what, what Zappa record has Cosmic Debris? He goes, oh, apostrophe, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, we have a copy here. And I go up, and I meet him, and I'm like, so, you know, besides Zappa, what do you like? And he goes, oh, you would have never heard of any of the bands that I like. And I'm like, well, who? And he goes, Ultravox, XTC, blah, and then he starts rattling off psychedelic furs. And I'm like, What? who wow you know so anyway he's like there's a record there's a punk store in pittsburgh called jim's records and he goes and we're going saturday do you want to go i'm like yes so <laughs> so so like so jason Pettigrew is 100 percent responsible for wow. like in 1980 i met him and then he's like we're going to see the pretenders do you want to go we're going and then he would start dragging me at those shows i met bill slam bill bill ebersol who was like super and hardcore Eric Bauer, and then they started making me tapes. The first tape that Bill Slam made me had the Meat Men, the Necros, Red Cross, Misfits, Gun Club, all in one cassette. And so I'm like, you know, once I found the guy who was my connect, but I remember, I remember the first time I went to gyms, I went in and I had um, five dollars. So I bought um, a Dead Kennedys, Too Drunk to Fuck single, and I bought uh, the Any Nowhere League. Streets of London, so what? Those are the first two punk records I owned. And you know, we're looking at which is like a very cliched, you know, like, right. you know, later both massacred by Metallica or whatever. <laughs> like, you know, household names now, but at the time, like, and I was like, ooh, punk, you know, and, and then I started like going to gyms, and like at that time, you could, the, the bins were just filled with, you know, X, and everything was three bucks. Flesh Eaters, three bucks, X, three bucks, TSOL, three bucks, three bucks. So if you could save $20, you could go down and get a really nice handful of records. And I just started going to gyms, and then I started going to shows. And then when I met Bill Slam, he's like, you know, there's local bands. And I was like, local punk bands. And then he, they took me to my first show, which was The Five and Radio Hanoi. Radio Hanoi was a short-lived band, but Sam Matthews was in it, who was later in, well, he's, he's in the six right now. I mean, he's still playing. He's older than me. 
I can I think he's been in 50 bands. Right. I think he said, you know, he's like he's the that guy of Pittsburgh. But we went to his house and you know, and I went through his record collection and he had like Sparks records and I'm like, "Oh, it's okay to like this." I'm like, so you can like glam and punk and you know, like it just uh-huh. it, it all opened, my, you know. So I was in high school, but thank God Bill Slam took me and then Eric Bauer drove me and Jason. So I once I met them and then there was the connection to Pittsburgh, which was like going to Pittsburgh was a big deal. The night Erg, you know the movie Erg, a music war. Yeah. Are you aware of that? Okay, it has you yeah, know the, the cassettes from that. Yeah, movie yes, it has it has it has you know it has Devo and Gary Newman and the Go Go's, but it also has the Dead Kennedys and Chelsea and Athletico Spiz and all this stuff. And I went and it was showing, and I I took well, my I was not allowed to drive to Pittsburgh, so I was like. I don't even know if I had my license yet. I was 15. I had a permit, but I was working at Eaton Park. I had a job. I was, you know, I worked uh, after school. I worked in a restaurant, and I drove to Pittsburgh. Oh, my God. I got in so much trouble, you know, like, but I had to see Erg because, like, the cramps were in it, you know, and it's like all these bands you would hear about, but I finally got to see. So that movie was so important to me because I got to see, and they showed it at the Stanley Theater, like, where I later saw, well, hell, I saw everyone from Rush to the gang of four in this at this venue but it was every everybody played there but they showed this movie on the big screen it was just it was like game changer and, and you know and then i and then and then you know i would go to gyms and then if i couldn't go to gyms i would tell him like i would tell jason I'd be like get me the dead kennedys album get me the fear album get me black flag get me you know and so sometimes i could go sometimes i couldn't i was grounded a lot you know because it's like you know, something like, and then I, the weirdest thing I ever did was voluntarily cut my hair. Because previous to that, I won't, you know, I was into like, uh, uh, well, I went to, let's see, I saw Van Halen, I saw Ted Nugent, I saw Rush, I saw Sticks. You know, I was like a, you know, typical doof, you know, and then, I, but then, I, but then my cousin took me to see Frank Zappa, and then that was, then it all, you know, then through Frank Zappa, I found Captain Beefheart, blah, 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 and everything else. But it's Jason Pettigrew, who is 100% responsible. Wow. For getting me into punk rock, so I, I all you need is that back then, and then once you found Jim's, he sold Flipside. So about Flipside number thirty, I remember I had Red Cross on the cover. I remember the first Flipside I ever got. MRR didn't exist yet, but you know, and it was like a zine. I was like, oh my god, L.A. Like, and I remember like there's a picture of social. The first time I ever saw a picture of Mike Ness, I remember like I'm like at home, like oh my god, they look so cool. What is this? It was like eighty one, I guess. You know. So it was like, but it was hard to get info, you know, and, and, but you did, you know, and I made, I made a social distortion shirt. I made a, I cut a stencil and spray painted it, you know, and I made like a flipper shirt and a fear shirt and all that, you know, when I graduated, I was wearing a homemade spray painted fear shirt under my cap and gown, you know, I was really, really punk rock and I couldn't wait to, but anyway, Bill Slam introduced me to local bands and then I saw, um, dress up as natives and ground zero and car sickness and, and we had a local scene, but we didn't have hardcore. Then when I moved there, I was determined to start a hardcore band, and 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 did you know, and the guys I enlisted were like Vince, the guitar player, who was later in uh, Half Life with me, was 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 really into hardcore. But the other two guys, Russell was like he was a stoner, you know, he's like he he grew pot in his room under like you know a fucking fluorescent light and all that. He loved the Ramones though. He was like that guy. It was like a stoner guy, Ramones, you know. And then there was Steve Heineman on bass, and he was into, I mean, he was into Gong, Can, Cluster, Egg, Vandergraaff Generator. It was totally prog, King Crimson. It, but we were like hardcore, and he's like, this will be an interesting experiment. So you have this guy who could play jazz, playing bass in this hardcore. That's why we didn't sound like anybody else, really. We were 
never like a thrash band. We were aspiring yeah. to do better, you know, and, and it's, it's kind of crazy. When I listen to Real Enemy now, uh, the few times I've heard them in my adult life, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed at how angry I was. Yeah. That's what freaks me out about it. If you play, you could, this would be, you could play a clip of, there's a song called Ignorant Hate. I think it's 20 seconds long. I'll link to it on the blog. Someone, you could play, online, yeah, yeah, but you could pl play that. I mean, it's, I'm so mad in that song, but then I'm mad because I got beat up by rednecks and yeah. kids put snuff in my hair. And, and the thing that used to freak me out about punk rock was like, if you did anything, if you cut your hair short, if you made it spiky, God forbid you dyed your hair, had a mohawk, wrote, wrote. Uh, one time I had to get off a bus because I had, I had the word discharge written on my jeans. Mm -hmm. I had the discharge logo. And these guys were going to beat me up. And I had to get off the bus, like way not near my exit. But luckily it cost a dollar to ride a bus. There's no way those guys were getting off. <laughs> you know, they weren't going to lose their dollar to beat up some weirdo. But then I had to fucking walk home or whatever. But I mean, like, but I was definitely punk when you were taking your life in your own hands, you know, by being that especially in pittsburgh when i got there but but previous to that like i i used to marvel at like i'm like okay so i have short hair and i'm wearing a shirt that says devo okay mm -hmm. these guys are shaving their heads and painting them like steelers helmets <laughs> you know that was perfectly fine right. you know that was like yeah you know like people did dumbass shit constantly all around me that was perfectly fine but you were like a target because they didn't know what it was mm -hmm. it was too new there was no reference for that mtv didn't exist there was not that mtv was a that, that bastion of hardcore punk <laughs> although when they first started they, they they used to show the kraut video for all twisted yeah. kraut made a video and they showed it, it was in regular rotation like you could see a legitimate new york hardcore band on mtv briefly and then once ZZ Top made videos, <laughs> once, uh, you know, whoever, once Pat Benatar figured out it was a good medium, that all that weird, the weird stuff got, you know, because yeah. at first it was mostly British bands that had videos. You could see Temple Tudor, like, you know, Clash, whatever. It was, it was pretty, pretty punk, kind of, when it started. But then it was also like, you know, the aforementioned Pat Benatar, whoever, it was all that. And, and all that new wave. There was just all those really, you know, sappy bands too. But you could you could catch there was some stuff in there. I mean, they showed Adam and the Ants or whatever and all that. I mean, but it was hard. Like, like to your point, it was it was hard to just even find out about punk or to get it or to, we were so isolated from it. But once I met Jason, then we had this regular. He had a couple of guys, Tony, this other guy Jim, who had cars, and they would go to Jim's once a week. So we had this like Jim's Records. I mean, Jim Spitzenegel is a good friend of mine. We're friends on Facebook now and we interact with each other and he's he's a great guy he retired he 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 quit and sold the business and it's been sold twice since but it's still there and it still has the same clash posters up and stuff it had in the 80s it's it's like you know it, it's it, it was called soundcat until recently uh, carl Hendricks owned it and he bought off this guy paul it was called paul cds but it keeps changing hands but it's still there Mike Siemens, who has Mind Cure, owned it. But it's a, in Pittsburgh, there was like there was no shortage of records. You could get any damn record you wanted, and that, thank God, you know. So we had good record stores, uh, plural. There's a handful of them, and uh, so once once I found out how to get punk rock and zines and records, that satisfied me only for a little while. Then it's like, no, we need bands now. Now we really have to, you know. So I took it upon myself to do that, you know, and and and, and then and did, and 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 it's. You know, the Pittsburgh scene. It's really funny. You know, the guys in like Annie Flag are, they're very reverent to me. Yeah. When I see them, I'm like, oh, my, you know, you were our first show. You know, and I'm like, thank you. You know, they're very, they're very aware of the history and they're very polite to me. And I get a lot of respect from, from that, that younger generation who are now like old compared right. to kids. You know, I went by Gilman. 
I don't know, a month ago, and they were loading in, and the, they were kids loading out of their parents' cars. They were, yeah. they were not old enough, to, like little kids, you know? So, I mean, when I was 30, somebody who was 15 was super young. Now that I'm 50, that's like, ah, that's like an alien. I'm like, what is this little person with a big amp, you know? Ah, you know, so... But the smugglers are reform. They're gonna play, and I'm gonna to go to Gilman and see them. Of yeah. course, yeah. We're uh, gonna that January. Is. Yeah, we bought tickets for a show oh, at Gilman. Tickets? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. We're gonna see the Tilt and the Criminals. Yeah, yeah. It's gonna be like really weird. I don't know what night the smugglers are playing, but I would never miss them. They're yeah. like dear friends, and I mean that whole era when you know I went. I was with Kathy for eight years, and she owned Lookout Records the whole time, and so every one of those bands stayed at our house, and we got to be very friendly with some of them as Ted Leo specifically but the smugglers were my favorite they're they have like five remarkable personalities and they're they're this really interesting band and they're they were good and 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 just you know and a really long time ago Grant uh, told me it was happening but like don't tell anyone yet but so yeah I'm gonna go I don't know if there's a guest list at Gilman God I hope so I doubt (laughs) it probably have to join I don't. I think you my. Better pay your I, I think my card from '87 is probably expired. Probably. And I had to buy one. Yeah. No, no, you didn't have to buy one. To, no, I got one. I went there briefly. Yeah, you paid like two dollars. I think was it to get a card and when I first moved. Five bucks. When I first moved here, I went to a couple of shows there. I remember uh, Christmas Eve Eve, uh, Poison Idea played in '89, and I went, and that was my last pit. Yeah. Yeah, they're playing, and this pit broke out. I'm like, yeah, Poison Idea, and I got it, and I, you know, I was out of step, and I got, you know, I was getting punched in the head, and like, Wah! I made like one circle, and like, <laughs> you know, pulled my, you know, it was like a cartoon with a, you know, you see like a ball of dust, and every now and then a fist or a foot flies out of it, and I got the hell out. That was so I retired from the pit in '89. I've not been in the pit in the '90s, 2000s, or subsequently in the. I have not, you know, so I can, I can pinpoint. The second where I'm like, I'm too old for this shit. And I was 24, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so I was just like, but I'd been doing it for a long time at that point. But, you know, I went to see, you know, I would go there occasionally. And then I, I quit going. Then I was going to see Tad and and, and the Fluid and, and all that, all, you know, all those bands. And, and, and the Gas Ferreira started and all that. Then I was starting to go to Garage Shock and I was into all the local stuff. And I quit going to Gilman. Then when I met Kathy, she was like, you got to go see the Peachies specifically mm-hmm. and I went to see them and I was like oh my god I love them and I love I loved them and Chris Chrisser was such a charismatic frontman Kathy is 100% responsible for getting me to reset it into punk and that's when I saw FI and Screw 32 and whatever was happening then I was like oh man this is good and you know Rancid their first record was out and mm-hmm. of course I'd seen Operation Ivy I saw them in Pittsburgh I saw them open for Fugazi their wow. next to the last show at the woman's building and I was friendly with them and everything and when they were in downfall I remember seeing Lint I guess we're supposed to call him Tim now I call him Lint and he, he was on the street and we were we were always very friendly but then you know Kathy went out f- with Matt from Rancid that was like her ex so mm-hmm. she took the picture of the you know, the back cover on their first record which says Gilman there uh-huh. under Gilman Street sign Kathy took that picture and she was a photographer that's yeah, what she, that that's, what, picture that's what she went to school uh she went to school in Santa Cruz. She took photography. But anyway, I started going to those shows again. And then and then I had like a real, uh, that was like a real reset, you know, because mm-hmm. she was not that much younger than me, uh, five years younger than me. But, it, you know, I started going to see younger bands again. And it was, and then I started going to see the queers all the time and all that. And it was great. So then I had everything. Then I had all that. I had all the all the bands that I would have worked with, like uh, Man or Astro Man in that era, you know, and all that. And then I, I was going to see her, and then she liked what I liked. I liked what her liked. So I, I mean, we we were 
I would say in the mid '90s, it was nothing to go out four days a week, if not five, right. and it just continued. You know, it just it went on and on and on. And eventually, Kathy outlasted me. I couldn't go out that much anymore. I remember, I remember her being like, "You got to go. It's mates of state, or it's whatever. Whoever was like, I remember, or like, uh, you know, um, Sleater Kinney, whatever, whatever that era. I'm like, oh, I can't go out every night anymore. It's, I can't do it. You know. But she got and she's, I'm, to my knowledge, she still goes out. Every night, yeah, she lives in Brooklyn now, and we're still very good friends. And she, uh, she came to my fiftieth birthday party. We, I had it in New York City. And it was crazy. My friend Dave Martin uh, DJed, and it was great. And uh, Eric from the New Bomb Turks, and anybody, any anybody from Pittsburgh who moved there, anybody who I knew who lived there came, and it was it was really awesome. And and uh, I, I, you know, really, really had a good one for fi- now fifty one. I had just started working at the car dealership, and I'm sitting at the desk, and it's dead. And the the guy uh, Fadi, who's from, uh, uh, he's from uh, Beirut, and 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 he, and, I, and he's sitting there, he's like, hey, and I go, it's my birthday. He goes, I buy you a sandwich. So I went from having this giant party in New York City to a a, a, a guy from uh, a Lebanese man buying me a sandwich. So I hope this year is a little better. I'm really I'm hoping I'm hoping to pick it back up, uh, to to some of its former glory. You remember those parties I had for my birthday? Sure. Epic, huge at Ricky's, Gambino, everybody, all the. Cole, whoever, uh, you know, uh, uh, the Espinosa brothers, everybody would come to that. It was just wonderful. And I did that for years. And then it got smaller, smaller. As the magazine went away, the crowd got, you know, I, I knew, I knew, I knew when to bail, you know, I was like, yeah, it's, you know, you know, I didn't want it. I didn't want it to just be me like, happy ah, sitting crying with a cupcake, you know, you know, with like a bent candle in it or something, you know. Yeah, I didn't let it get that low. <laughs> I bailed out beforehand, but no, it's it's it, it it's it's been it's been all that. Uh, so, what, what what how did that start? <laughs> I'm not even sure where that where we started on that one. You know, punk rock. You asked me how I got into punk rock. Yeah, I found out. Good story. I still love it. I I I uh I have an iPod that I inherited. Uh, my most recent ex gave me, actually. I don't think she knows I have it. <laughs> oh well, this podcast may cost me an iPod, but I loaded it up, and it's—I mean—it's literally like uh, the Attics and you know, and TSOL and but but like you know, Cron Gen and Blitz and uh, that and, and GBH and the Exploited and all and it's so good, yeah. it's so good like that, and the Dead Boys and. You know, whatever the Clash and the Professionals and the Sex Pistols and all, and I listen and the Ruts and 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 that's what I listen to. You know, that's like, you know, I I sold a I sold a Cardo guy who was eighty six, and he was like, "Will you help uh, pair my five And I'm like, "Wow, you have an iPhone, cool." You know, he's like, "Well, I want to play my music," and it was the coolest thing ever. He was eighty six years old, and his iPod was full of like Woody Herman and Artie Shaw, and it was all big band. All four, it was like his music, and then I realized like, you know what, you carry it with you. Yeah. And I'll always have punk rock. I'll always have it. So when I play it, it doesn't sound. If you're listening to the really good stuff, it doesn't sound dated at all. Yeah. You know, it's and it sounds fantastic actually. And like I'll, it makes my commute. You know, I drive to San Rafael. It's 24 miles each way. So I have a 50, 50 miles a day. 50 miles a day. I'm in my car, and I just punk rock makes it go so much better. You know, if I'm cleaning, if I have to do dishes, bad religion. Boom! The same, they're done. You know, it's like it. I, it's still. You know, I'm still totally punk rock. But, you know, I, I can't imagine like going to Gilman and getting in the pit or something. Yeah. I'd be this weird old, fat guy. You know, like I can't. I can't be. You know, I don't want to be that guy. You know, 
but but the music stays with you forever. It's it's it, you know it 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 shaped the it's the fabric of my soul. It shaped everything I am. Yeah. And when you're like a lone weirdo like I was, like out in this rural area, and and the kids, you know, they they weren't even listening to rock they were listening to charlie daniels yeah. and stuff where i'm from I mean, it was like and willie nelson and, and it was country and like the aforementioned outlaws and skinnard you know i used the kids would pay me to paint ja the back of their jean jackets <laughs> logos and i did uh -huh. many a leonard skinner flag uh -huh. and for five bucks or whatever and it, you know it's you know it's funny i did zz top jackets it's very funny because you know i'm friends with billy gibbons now yeah. and i painted that i used to get paid <laughs> to paint like the cowboy from ZZ Top's Greatest Hits. I painted that on several people's jackets, you know. Yeah, well, I had acrylic paint. And it, you would just paint. You would just, And I eyeballed it. I didn't have an <laughs> overhead projector. I just did it. And it looked great, you know. And I was like, so that, that, I guess that was the peak of my artistic endeavor. Like painting southern rock pants on people's <laughs> jackets. But, you know. But anyway, that, you know, so later later on, you know, it, it the punk rock came came along at exactly the right time you know i often think if i was 30 years younger would i be into you know techno and house and yeah. all that or what i you know what i do all that you know whatever was the most cutting edge thing right now and there's all that weird stuff mashups and things kids make and they you ever said stuff that looks like bad atari games video you know what i'm talking they, yeah. they, they, they like that they people fetishize the music that was soundtracks of antiquated video games and they mixed that Hip with hop. yeah and all that i mean like i wonder if i would have done that because hardcore was certainly the most happening thing in 1981 yeah. certainly i mean it was very underground and very you know and you you had to know someone to know about it and it wasn't on tv except for fear being on saturday night live right. halloween 1981 i saw king crimson that day yeah. at cmu and we rushed back so we could catch fear and we saw him, we're like, what the hell, you know? And it's so funny, because I know almost all the guys who were in they it. They must have been, right? They, they, they came from D.C., yeah. Yeah, and, and that's why they were all anti-New York. Yeah, and the Necros. Were... That's, well, Ian yells, New York sucks. That's Ian McKay yelling that yeah. on that. Oh, you know, yeah. But the Necros are there. If I watch them now, I'm like, look, Barry, Andy, Tesco V, they're all there. Huh. But they, but there's people from New York there, too. T-Shirt Tony, the singer of Ultraviolence, is, is there. Huh. There's New York punks, too, but it's... To get that crowd, they brought. They, I don't know if they bust them in. Uh, that's what I heard. They actually bust them in from another show that day. In DC, the, that's the that's majority the of those kids are from DC. Huh. Like uh, Void are there, uh, yeah. But you can see Barry from the Necros. He gets on stage for a minute and he has a Pagan's jacket, <laughs> and he's like, you know, seventeen or whatever. There he is on national TV, slamming, you know. And I remember like, and then I saw the Necros like, you know, a year later. Or whatever. No, no, no. I, I didn't see the Necros till uh, March 6, 1983 at the 930 Club. It was Necros Faith Meet Men. And I went, and that's when I met Barry. And he was like, and I'm like, oh, man, you know, I love you guys. My first show. And he's like, Johnny, come lately. <laughs> so I'm like 18, but I was, quote, Johnny, come lately to him. You know, and he, he's my age, you know. Well, he's 19. He was not, he's a year older than me. It's just so funny, like, that. you know. It didn't take long, but that's the thing in the hardcore scene. When you met them, you—they were your age, they were your peers. You became friends with them. There was, you know what I mean. There was really no barrier between band and audience whatsoever. One thing that was a lot different, I think, for your generation versus mine is back then punk rock was very participatory. Like there weren't just people downloading songs and buying clothes and just going about their life. It was like I guarantee you, no, but nobody was downloading songs. It was it was three years before that 
famous Apple commercial, you know, where they throw the hammer at the. I mean, you couldn't even get a home computer, so I guarantee you nobody was downloading anything. It wasn't a. It wasn't a spectator sport back then. No, no. And in fact, the reason that the big boys broke up, Tim Kerr said, is like, I got the sense that everybody there wasn't there to form a band or do a fanzine, or it became like a show. That's that's why they broke up. There's a documentary coming out about them that I'm in. I was interviewed for it, which I'm again grateful for. I'm hopefully right between you know Keith Morris and you know <laughs> Gary Floyd or whatever you know. But it's it, it's great that I get asked to participate in these things, and uh, but but uh, that's coming out like that. That's when I interviewed Tim for Maximum Rock and Roll. That's why they felt like not everyone there was there to do something anymore. Huh. In '84, they they were like screw this. You know, and then of course he started playing again, but he got in the funk band, Bad Mother Goose and Poison Thirteen were like, you know, pre pre grunge, whatever. They were very influential to Green River and Mud Honey and all those bands eventually. But but he, he played music again, of course, but it was garage and then that had its own I think the garage scene in its infancy when early nineties now was very participatory. Everybody, you know, almost everyone had a zine or a label or this or this or this. I, you could count on one hand how many people were there just to drink and watch the band i mean everybody was somebody and, and and it was really like circling back around to that you know uh with i i really embraced the garage scene because it was uh it, it was that it was that diy ethos again big time yeah. you know and uh, and i loved untamed youth i loved deke dickerson and they were so fun they made these videos that they would sell on vhs tapes of goofy shit they would do and and there's like a, they made a video when they were in high school and they, they put that on there and it's just like I, I loved that you know and they were in Missouri so they had their problems going around covering the dictators or whatever they were trying to accomplish but it was great I mean like and but they had a zine the Untamed World they had all that like they you know there was a lot of people that were really savvy you know and, and, and you know the people the guys in the mummies are charismatic and the phantom servers are charismatic they're interesting guys and they collected you know they had big retro collections and old cars and all that it was it was like you know that that's where i really found the audience for the magazine eventually but i wanted to introduce a punk element if you look at garrett i would always i would always review afi and rancy you know i pushed yeah. that stuff because i i didn't want to I don't know if any that, that, then that age gap comes in so you know I'm hanging out with younger people and listening to that and these older ones are like Link Ray or nothing you know I'm like well you know you you know you'd really like AFI actually or whatever it was you know like you know and, and just trying to trying to keep it all moving forward you know but uh, that's a big job that's a big job for one guy I'll, I'll let I'll, I'll let you or someone else do that I'm, I'm, I'm fine not 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 being responsible for it anymore yeah that was easy. So, anyway. Awesome. I think that's yeah. pretty good. I you, think we go any longer, people are going to start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, don't go longer. Edit it. <laughs> yeah, well, man, thank well, you This was so live. Much. You didn't know? Yeah. No, yeah. 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 That would be great. <laughs> yeah, well, it would, it would cost me an iPod. Maybe. You want that cut out? Yeah. What? You want that cut no. out? No. <laughs> no, but I was... But, I'm just saying that I still listen to punk rock all yeah. the time. Like, more than ever. In the car is a great place to listen to music, you know. You can play as loud as you want. And yeah. Windows down. I'm like, fuck you. Go by. You know, if a CHP has someone pulled over on that side, I'm like, oh. You know, like, hate the cops still. Why? I have no idea. Anyway. Did you turn it off? Uh, no. Let, oh. me, let me wrap it up, I guess. Thank you so much for your time. Oh. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> I've, n I've never met anyone who doesn't like talking about themselves for two hours. So it's my pleasure. My pleasure.
Well, that's it. You made it to the end. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks, Mike, and thanks, Josie, for sitting out and having the conversation. I had a really great time, and I hope it was fun to listen to. So that's it. That's all I got. Uh, Thank you so much for listening.